Welcome back to We Want More, the Harry Potter and Methods of Rationality Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Zuber, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Brian Deacon. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 Uh, I, can't, I can't do the uh, Monty Python falsetto. Oh, I was doing the uh, Seinfeld one, mm. where they're doing that, and he ends up losing a girlfriend over it. <laughs> <laughs> or is that the high talker one? No, it's where they, they're like, just, that's their whole thing is like saying hello or something in uh, that stupid voice. And like, he has to decide which one he wants. He's got like this thoughtful moment on the pier. Um, anyway, this wasn't about Seinfeld. I was going to only open up with the single pre-episode digression of my disappointment in all of you, because I haven't received a single fan art submission yet. And there's $125 on the table. I don't get why you guys hate money. I'm trying to get creative and thinking of evil things to do with this money. Should no one collect it by submitting any fan art to win the contest? So rest assured, I will put my full ingenuity to the task on how to worst spend that $125 if no one submits and wins. I think this calls for a special mixture of psychology and extreme violence. (laughs) (laughs) Where we like do the stack overflow trick of just belittling them into trying to just prove us wrong because you rationalists are nothing but a bunch of Spocks incapable of creating art. And clearly you're demonstrating it right now. Yeah. What are you cowards? That should work. That'll totally work. That, what are that, you? We're going to have, we're going to have something by like Tuesday evening. What are you? Chicken <laughs> McFly? Chicken McFly. No, no, no. See, that's the wrong, that's the wrong button to push. You got to call them stupid and unimaginative. Yeah. Vulcans. Vulcans. Does Spock even like art? I just, uh, I've never watched an episode of Star Trek. No, he just like alphabetizes stuff and calls it art. I mean, alphabetization (laughs) is tight, but you know, so, so is colorful things, pictures. All right. Well, that aside, keep in mind. I want to see see a caricature of me. I don't know where people are going to get. There's like the, what the one, there's like one public, I don't know. There's like two public pictures of me in the world. I just told people you look like John Malkovich with a goatee. Yeah, there you go. Just like John Malkovich. Yeah, and he's, I think we've covered that. He's, he has a goatee phase. I just watched Being John Malkovich again a few nights ago because we were talking about it. It is an odd movie. That is an entertainingly odd movie. Nice. If you're right, you should see it if you haven't seen it. I will check it out one of these days. It's um, watchable. All right, so keep in mind the, the link for the fan art contest is in the show notes for this episode. Submissions are closed on August 31st. So get your stuff in ASAP, people. And then voting will be open for a week, assuming anyone submits anything. And then we will go nuts with uh, announcing the winner, and it'll all be this happy adventure. So, Yeah, how are we doing voting? Is it just anybody anybody that gets on the website can vote? Pretty sure. Patrons. You know what? I should know this because I made the thing. Because we're the ones making up the rules. Patrons are the only ones who get to vote. Patrons get to vote. That sounds fair. Yeah, that start that starts to turn into some kind of like legalities around. Is that is this then like a lottery? <laughs> not exactly. Not well, because now they have to give us at least a dollar in order to try to get. You know, do we have a minimum? Are you allowed to be a patron for like one penny? No, I think it's a buck. I think that's just Patreon's minimum. A peso. Uh, you know what? Now that you mention it, it shouldn't matter on currency. A Zimbabwean right. dollar. There's got to be. <laughs> there's got to be some way to. <laughs> Anybody at, but, at work that is traditional uh, Christmas present everybody knew was to give them a trillion Zimbabwean dollars. Apparently, that's, that's awesome. like a, a legit thing. They had a trillion dollar bill. We've got one here at the house. Yeah, yeah, mine's lying over here somewhere. Yeah, if you ever need to, you know, blow your nose or something, it's probably about the same cost as a tissue. Oh uh, yeah, the, the cool 2020 version is the Venezuelan peso. 
Right on. They're, they're starting to make arts and crafts out of their paper currency now. Jeez. Well. Uh, That's a solid digression that has nothing to do with Harry Potter. So good work, us. Yeah. Let's let's uh, so segue here and we're going to jump into chapter 86, multiple hypothesis testing. Dun, dun, dun. So, Brian, what was your favorite part of this chapter and why was it the fight with Moody? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, if you say that. I probably, although I'm, I'm going to like make lots of friends this week because Harry just bugged the shit out of me this time. But I think uh, that there yeah. are, there's a lot to talk about with his uh, his conduct and his thinking patterns in this that I'm looking forward yeah, to getting into. Yeah, actually, yeah, and that's, this is another one where I'm like not quite sure what to make of it. But yeah, there was actually some interest. There'll be some interesting stuff as I'm like being irritated with Harry, um, partially being like, am I capital S supposed capital T to be irritated with Harry? Um, I find so, myself yeah. disappointed in, in him in this chapter, yeah, so we'll, you know, we'll get into we're, that. We're probably talking about the same thing. Also, I was proud of my, I think my latter paranoia this week paid off pretty well, uh, especially in trying to like understand this behavior. But yeah, I guess at about halfway through, I kept thinking, I just sort of kept picturing that like, I think Yudkowsky was just in a bad mood when he wrote this one. <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of it had like a fun element to it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And actually now that you said the, the moody stuff was pretty cool. Both, yeah, yeah, on all the multiple levels. I guess we'll get into that. So, yeah. Oh, hey, let's do the thing where we say all the stuff that happened. Right. I think that's sort of worked out better. And I even wrote bullet points for it this time. So, how does it? So, it starts out where the, I think you you call that what like a, a war a command room vibe, where with uh, Harry McDonald and Dumbledore and Snape are all in Shay Dumbledore, um, and they're basically just trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And so this chapter goes through, what is it, four sections of the four hypotheses of them like mulling over, okay, could it be Voldemort that was up to this? Could it be Snape that was up to this? Could it be, who am I forgetting? Could it, could it really have been Hermione? Could it be... Uh, could it be Dumbledore? Coral? Could it be could Lucius? Be and could oh, it yeah, be... Oh, yeah, we had a bunch, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they didn't all get their like explicit sections then, I don't think. No, I think, so, yeah. I mean, the defense yeah. professor gets his own section as well. So. Could it have been... Gilderoy Lockhart. Of course. Could it have been Ludo Bagman? Can't forget about Gilderoy. Gilderoy. There's got to be a pun in there somewhere because of all the memory charm shenanigans. We forgot about Gilderoy Lockhart. So, yeah, and I think, and then uh, Mad-Eye Moody uh, makes his, this is our first time we've actually seen Mad-Eye, isn't it? I mean, we've heard of him. He was there poisoning Voldemort's graveyard. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, like the Snape. family graveyard. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, this is our biggest. Oh, yeah, we kind of get like an initial taste for the uh, the ladder of paranoia. Where, where did that phrase "ladder of paranoia" come from? Because it's not. A I have no idea. Metaphor. That's I, just from high up on the ladder. Yeah, I guess so. I it's a good phrase. I would like to think I get credit for it, but I don't think I'm that creative. So I must have heard it somewhere, or one, or maybe you said it first. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think it was me. Because yeah. But uh, so yeah, we get to we we get to meet Mad Eye Moody, uh, Harry, and Mad Eye who's just got a shack on the top of the ladder. <laughs> <laughs> he just lives there, man. He's got his cave. Yeah, his cave. I don't know how he put a cave at the top of a ladder. This ladder. We, we never really dis- discuss like what this ladder is climbing up. Is it just some ladder standing? In the- is it an A shaped ladder? Is it a ladder leaning up against something? Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> so and then uh, yeah, Harry and Moody. Uh, getting a little uh a mini battle um and then i think the and then the rest is just kind of more uh hypothesizing right do we get 
trying to all remember as we get toward the toward the end. So, and we have like some of the significant sort of revelations. But I think, do we have any like? There's no literal plot advancement. It's like discovery of ideas. Am I remembering? Am I forgetting? Yeah, I mean nothing. Uh, really no, like, moves forward. Yeah, yeah. No, no change in the state of anything. It's just people figuring things out, which I guess is somewhat a change. But yes, there isn't a thing that happens. There's the realization of things. It's fun for me. I, so, I love yeah. these, just the brainstorming things. So, like yeah. that's part of what makes these sto- the story a lot of fun for me is the like, all right, let's sit down and like just, again, bring our lawyers and hash this out best we can. <laughs> um yeah, a little bit. I mean, that was like, I think, I don't know if I pulled it in the notes, but there was one place I, I highlighted where like it said, Harry said in a lecturing tone. I'm like, the lecturing tone started like 12 pages ago. But, so that's, <laughs> that's, that, that sums up pretty much the uh, my irritation this morning. I think uh, that was meant to draw a distinction. Like when occasionally when he's talking with uh, Professor Quirrell, it says like, and same with McGonagall, where like, you know, their voice took on their like professorial tone. Yeah. So it's like, all yeah, right, like, yeah. you, you've and stopped, I, like, you stopped dialoguing and you're more like reciting from memory, like a yeah. lesson. And I was, as I was kind of like mulling that at work, recording a little late this week. So I've had more days to think about it. Um, that I think I'm sort of like, okay, Brian, be fair to Harry. But I think a lot of the time what will register to me is just sort of like, you know, condescending, you know, arrogant, whatever is that I think sometimes it can just, um, if Harry just gets kind of a little too like clinical or dry, like what I think what's really going on about like the underlying vibe going on in Yudkowsky's head is kind of just an enthusiasm for what he's talking about. <clears throat> but if he, he can sort of like drift into sounding a little dry about it, which can then read as like that combination of like really wanting to get into the detail because you just find the idea really interesting, but then being a little, you know, uh, spocky in delivery can then come across really bad. And so that like, I could see how like, to be fair about it, that that could just be like a, that's kind of a presentation rather than an intent behind it. To be she, fair. To be, to be fair. Oh, good. You watched Letterkenny too. <clears throat> oh, that's, that's, that's the show. All right. Finally, we'll start, we'll have to do that every time one of us does to be fair. Uh, to be fair. Yeah. That, you know, that may also made me think, it was like, there's almost never anything unpretentious one says after to be fair, which I think, <laughs> which I think was Letterkenny's point. Yeah. I think that's how they got started on that. To be fair. To be fair. To be fair. All right, so let's let's dive in here. At the top of the chapter, the four of them are gathered once more around the ancient desk of the headmaster of Hogwarts. And, and there's also this fun yeah, little thing. More I, mention of all the weird little uh, knickknacks going buzz and whir. Yeah, and of course, legend had it that headmistress Shella had once gotten lost in that desk and was, in fact, still in there and wouldn't be let out again until she got her <laughs> files organized. <laughs> it's some Just, sort of like, like it's in a... <clears throat> Like time doesn't move forward, so she's not aging; she's just filing. I just like the little like it's it stays aware to like some of the uh, I don't know Hogwarts shenanigans and the random I don't know comedy of the Wizarding World. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I like the because uh, it's described as like file drawers within file drawers. It, gave, it reminded me of the um, Library of Babel thing. Where there's like a room and a shelf and a sh- yeah, just like going forever. She's got like fractal filing to be doing. She's gonna be in there a while. Okay, so uh, it's uh, McGonagall, Snape, Dumbledore, and Harry, and Moody is meant to join them, but hasn't arrived yet. So Harry's sitting there on the edge of his, like, what, on the chair of the arm, like, kind of just, like, too energetic to sit properly. Yeah. 
No, I was uh, having trouble because then I'm like, is that is it like a big cushy chair? Is he like just sitting on the edge of like a wooden? For some reason, I got caught up in the image of that. I would hope it's one of a comfy arm on it. If it's just I a wood so, bar, yeah. fuck that. My brain had like one of those problems of just like keep picturing him like losing his balance and falling off. And for some reason, <laughs> I like the back of my brain like couldn't settle on the image because there was like some anxiety about him being unbalanced. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll read one last sentence here and then get us. We'll we'll dive into it properly. Um, basically, it's this is from McGonagall's point of view at this, the opening of this chapter, and she's feeling bad about like. Harry not really getting a chance at a childhood. And she says, uh, maybe there was another face that Harry showed the children his own age when he wasn't staring down the wizengamot, but she couldn't help or she couldn't stop herself from imagining Harry Potter's childhood as a heap of firewood and herself and Albus feeding the wooden branches piece by piece into the flames. Yeah, that's a good image. I like it's just kind of another, like my favorite thing about uh, McGonagall's that's sort of like concerned, but, kind of like tense strict but like you know sincere you know concern for harry and affection for harry so she's like both like kind of strict but you also get the like that doesn't mean she's like cold exactly she's just awesome she's the shit so so harry insists and i think it makes a rather compelling case that things have become serious enough for him to get fully in the loop on the prophecy because dumbledore knows it and voldemort knows it and he's like all right cool things have you know become quite serious i think as he says the war has begun as you put it and it seems ridiculous that the enemy knows the the, the prophecy and i don't but uh dumbledore pretty much shoots it down right or did it stay unresolved no he he capitulates and harry gets the full... gonna... oh, he's, so he's going to be allowed in there because we so i guess we haven't seen it i mean he's, they're not doing it they, but they didn't make specific plans to do it right well, what, what tell him? They they tell him at the no, beginning. No, no, not, no, no, no. That he wants to go, or maybe I jumped ahead and I didn't see what I was talking about. That he wants to go to the actual um, Ministry of Magic and and see the prophecy ball. Oh yeah, uh, Dumbledore and does the, not uh, permit yeah. that. Yeah, and he's kind. Of, I think, and he's at least to me, it like felt a little vague as to why. Uh, yeah, some like, some um, handy excuse yeah, about how it's yeah, evasive it's, it's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, and that sort of like stuck in the back of my head. It's like, oh, what's what's going on there? I like how Harry, um, like when he asks, he's like, can I go to this Ministry of Mysteries places or this min- Ministry of Mysteries, which isn't what they called it. Uh, he's just it. like, it just shows that he's not really paying attention yeah. or doesn't really care about like, all right, cool. Name for this. Can I go to that Where, that prophecy that place? Yeah. Isn't it because it's like, it's the what Hall of Mysteries? Because it's like a section of the ministry, isn't it? It's got, there's something with mysteries in the name. Yeah, department. It's a department it's a hall of, of prophecy in the department of mysteries. In the ministry of magic, you know, I mean, as I far as business card, department of mysteries sounds like a really cool place to work. Right. You need to have a like esquire in your job title or in your name in the department of mysteries. Yeah. All right. But yeah, that just so yeah so the. And well, and we do in a, in a second. They'll start to kind of rehash the the literal verbiage of the prophecy too. But but yeah, that does get shot down. And I guess like Dumbledore a little bit tries to sort of like divert him with like, oh, don't worry, we're you know we'll tell you the whole thing right now. You don't need to see it. So as we were saying this morning, I'm like, well, what's up with that? I don't want Harry going to the Department of Mysteries. I think it's a safe bet that Harry would probably fuck something up. <laughs> like I, I think, in fact. Uh, when Professor McGonagall's like reflecting on it, um, I wish I could find the exact words. Uh, something about how um, 
like the legends aren't clear on what happens if you listen to prophecies that aren't your own uh, uh, or that aren't about you. Like the, the prophecies, some of them, like your head just might explode. Yeah. Um, the, oh, the legends like, run clear yeah, on I, that. But Harry like bats that away. He's like, well, no, I'm talking about listening to the one that applies to me. So next excuse. I don't think Harry yeah, could help like, himself. Yeah. I think he'd be guess, like, ooh, uh, mysteries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, what he likes not to stop. I don't know. I just like uh, not so much McGonagall's, right, but something about Dumbledore's reaction just seemed sketchy to me. I'm like, so I, th- I think there's something Dumbledore's not saying. I'm into it. Right. I mean, Mad Eye Moody's in this chapter. Yeah. We should be as paranoid as fucking possible. Same. So, right now, right? Um, so where do we go? So then they, that sort of just gets as settled as it gets. But then there. Do we, I don't recall anything super significant coming of them kind of trying to parse the, um, like the actual wording of the prophecy. Was there, I mean, it was, we could, like, uh, Snape does say like, oh, you know, if, <clears throat> like, if the thing had happened, I would know because that's part of how prophecies work is that once they come true, everybody suddenly understands what they meant. Yeah. So that, that's mainly what comes out of Harry getting the exact verbiage of it is yeah. that like he... I think understandably, because I mean, so that's the thing to keep in mind from from Harry's perspective. He has no good reason to believe that Voldemort is still alive. Like we do because we read the books and like the the canon books. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's hard to like dissociate what we know from what the character knows and what the character's honest, best faith guess might be. Yeah. And, so Harry- you know, like, and a lot of what's motivating everybody else's thought that it's Voldemort is the breakout from Azkaban, but Harry knows that. Well, Harry thinks he knows that it's, that that wasn't Voldemort, that it was Coral. Right. Um, so he's got you know one extra reason to disbelieve it. Yeah, and I think that was that's what I like too. When it gets to um, like when it cuts to Harry, because he's being kind of like it seems yeah, obstinate being- about admitting like, hey, look, this makes no sense. You guys aren't really considering how unlikely this is, etc. And then when it cuts to Harry, he's like, the frustrating part is that he couldn't explain. He can't articulate out loud what his actual reasons for disagreeing were um but yeah so the main thing that comes out of them talking about the prophecy is harry is like okay well let's just be clear like it it seems like this could have actually already happened like the prophecy could be done and uh yeah so like i think that's a that was the part from harry's more information that he has i think that's a fairly good guess yeah, although that was the part that seemed so, and that was so Snape's response to that was, no, if it had come true, then I would know. And that seemed to be kind of that he wasn't just sort of talking about like, oh, I would have figured it out that there was something about the magic of a prophecy that people then, you know, like once it's resolved, people then all know and understand. And so that was some sort of like kind of more solid rebuttal to Harry's idea. And then again, Dumbledore's kind of cagey about saying like, oh, there's something, there are more things we know that I'm not going to tell you about, about how we know that Voldemort is still alive. He mentioned something about like books he couldn't find and a scroll that was missing. He's like, wait, so you couldn't find these and that proves that you know who has them? And Dumbledore just rather than, he says, indeed, (laughs) rather than saying, well, of course I can't prove where they are since I couldn't find them. He just says flat out, yeah, of course it means that he has them. But But this is the first part. Dumbledore also says that there's like something... Dumbledore sort of is like intentionally mysterious. He's like, no, there is more and I'm not telling you why, but that lets us know. Like he's not. Um, um, he, he talks about uh, like there are terrible rituals by which wizards have returned from death that much. Anyone can discern within history and legend. He says, but those books are missing. It was Voldemort who removed them. I am sure. And, yeah, and I, there was something he said 
something besides that, I thought. An ancient scroll which should have been at Borgen and Burke's with only an empty shelf to show where it was. No, there was something like he said. He didn't mention the thing. He just said, there is a thing and I'm not going to tell you. Maybe I misunderstood uh, it when I read it. Well, I think it was so right he says, around that same conversation. But. Before that, he says, Voldemort is alive. There are other indications. And then Harry asks, such as, and he lists the book and the scroll and that sort uh, of stuff. Okay. I guess, uh, okay. Okay. I guess I interpreted it as like those weren't entirely like that he wasn't revealing everything, but. Let's yeah, be real. Dumbledore is probably not revealing everything. Yeah, oh, yes. Uh, and, and this is actually like, so his, his thing with Snape where uh, Snape says, I would know if the prophecy had come true. I think that is the first example of like my main gripe with Harry in this chapter, which don't get me wrong. Love the guy. Love what he does in this, in, in this. But the main thing that he, so he, he goes on to do what I think is a perfectly reasonable approach of trying to weight probabilities, even if he has to assign them himself, just for the purpose of actually articulating how confident he is in every step that would involve his the, his hypothesis or alternatively his, his, his hypothesis being true or alternatively false. Um, what he doesn't do is he doesn't ask for data. So like when Snape yeah. says, I would know if it was true. And Harry says like, okay, well, I'm not sure what to do with that statement. Uh, he, what he should ask, he, he could have asked just like you said, wait, is that a magic thing about prophecies that once they happen, people who heard them know that it happened? And then if the answer is yes or no, that would have heavily informed his Bayesian calculation, right? If yeah, the answer, actually, if the answer he, was yes, and it's like yes, this is how prophecies work, Harry. When when the prophecy happens, the, the ones who hear it know that it happened. It is it is magically a thing. Then he'd be like, oh, okay, that is rather significant. Um, yeah, and he, uh, I pulled I pulled the quote where Harry himself describes what you're talking about. He said, one version of the process was to tally hypotheses and list out evidence, make up all the numbers, do the calculation, and then throw out the final answer and go with your brain's gut feeling after you'd forced it to really weigh everything. And then, so you read that, I'm like, okay, that's because as I was going through, and he's, especially because he's like making up number, like specific numbers rather than adjectives. Um, and uh, so I'm like, okay, that's like, bothering me as it's going on and then he describes this as like the theory of why that's okay but then i'm like wait a minute that's not really what you did um especially like with what you said like he doesn't ask for um additional data but that also he's sort of like he's as he's going he's sort of forming those gut opinions only halfway through and then that's uh influencing what other numbers he feels like making up not just like the values but like because I think a lot of what he gets wrong in this chapter is um, like, yes, you're an analyzing stuff, but you didn't step back to look at, are you even analyzing the right thing? Um, I think, and then I think that's kind of what he does here is he ends up like steering himself away from what he thought he was doing was going to get him, you know, kind of arriving at, all right, this is what the whole situation is telling me without me kind of trying to stick my, you know, preconceptions into it. But I think he, and I think it was almost called out like by him describing what the idea of what he was supposed to do is, it's sort of like pointed it out even more like, oh, but that's not actually what you did. So what he's doing is like step one in, in a Bayesian calculus. And like, it's, it's worth pointing out that uh, Bayes' theorem is a mathematical theorem. It's not like a, it's not like one option of doing things. It's not it's it's a mathematical theorem, right? This isn't like an opinion. This is how probabilities actually work. And if, if you're a mathematician. And so like, I mean, the, the easiest way to demonstrate this might be like, if I rolled a die, 
and I asked you to guess what number came up. And you would, I mean, for example, you might say, well, there's a one sixth chance. It's a one, right? Mm-hmm. And then if I tell you, well, actually it's, it's an, it's an even number. And so, so now you've got new information, you update your initial prior and you have a, okay, well then there's a one third chance. It's a two. Um, so like the, 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 the process starts depending on what you're trying to, to run through the theorem, you might just have to make up numbers. And like, it's weird, like people draw, some people draw like a bizarre amount of contention with that, but that is just how things work. Like with any problem yeah, you're facing. Like, and that's the, and I, that's like kind of the trap. And I think the trap that Harry does fall into here is like for that example, um, okay, there's a, and I think that like part of like the allure, the what makes the trap easy is once you start um, applying math to things, like just the arithmetic of it, like lulls you into a like overblown sense of certainty. Cause like for a like, dumb example on your thing is, okay, you know, what's the number on the die? And like among the possibilities is that you're just fucking lying and that there were no die. Um, <laughs> and, and so like, that's the thing, like, and that's not like, like, okay. And eventually like once you decide to think of it that way, then you could apply math to that and then you could decide, okay, what are the odds that he's lying? Um, but like that, there's like an infinite supply of like, of those things. And, and I think like that sort of gets lost is like, um, like you, you're not even sure, like you, you think you've like wrapped your brain around the thing and you, uh, what, uh, Donald Rumsfeld used to call it unknown unknowns. Um, and that then, was like, my team name thing. at my first job. <laughs> uh, uh, so was mine. Yes, you had. To, you're on, on the same the, team I started on the there. Total coincidences. Yes, if we haven't said that on the podcast before. Stephen and I, without knowing each other, worked for the same team at the same company at different Not times. At, the same time, at different times. Yeah. The unknown unknowns. Yeah. Is so that Ben that came up with that name? Uh, he helped because I they they pitched unknown unknowns, and I insisted that I wanted the team name to be like a thing that you could be a unit of. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you you can't be. Uh, I mean, you, I guess you could say like unknown, unknown, unknown. but I was like, let's make it a thing. So they went with unknowns, like garden unknown. gnomes. And, and I brought it. in like a little Vanta black painted garden gnome model. Oh, see, I, I, sat, I sat right next to that. Oh, good. I didn't even know it was you. All right. Well, Shame yeah, I, I will, I'll link to a, a great little video that actually someone posted in the Bayesian conspiracy subreddit this week um, of Sean Carroll laying out in like 10 minutes, how Bayes' theorem works. Um, I like the, the problem of, and this is what Harry says, like when 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 Snape calls him out, he's like, "Where are you getting these numbers?" He says, "Yes, that is the admitted weakness of the method." Um, the the question of how do you inform your priors? Yeah. Now, well, part, that's like, part of the answer like to that the extra, is it, the extra step on that that Harry doesn't isn't even aware that he's missing is, and when when, when he gets into his whole like super obnoxious sounding like, "Is Voldemort dumb or smart?" Um, he like completely misses what's really going on, or at least Brian's, I think, pretty solid theory of what's really going on. And so he's like trying to cut and he almost starts to get there. But, and I think that's part of it is like, he's, uh, the universe of stuff he's even considering is off. And then, but then he's like getting fooled into thinking that like, and so he's like, Oh, I'm still not certain, but like, he's not even aware of how uncertain he is. <laughs> and that that's part of the problem. And and so, I mean, just to, to finish up on like the, the issue of priors, like part of it, you can inform from your like pre-existing model of the world. Um, you know, Harry does a, a bit of that. Like there aren't a ton of immortal people running around. So like that means that it must at least be rare. Um, but the other thing that really makes Bayes' theorem awesome is that it doesn't really matter what your priors are. 
you need a number to plug in to plug and chug in the equation, but it doesn't matter what it doesn't really matter what it is because after you update a few times, you're going to be closer and closer to the right answer. And you update with new evidence that you get via experimentation. And part of the point of doing a Bayesian calculation at the beginning, or at least thinking of things in Bayesian terms, is all right, where do I want to concentrate my efforts at the beginning? You know, if I bring in my car to the mechanic and I say it's it's running weird and like I'm I'm a bad customer, I'm not explaining what's wrong. Well, they're probably not gonna check like I mean they'll check anyway, but they're not gonna assume that the problem is the brake lights. You know? They're and why why not? Because in in the majority of cases where people bring in their car and say something like it's acting weird, they're not talking about the brake lights. And so they without doing a number crunch, they're doing a Bayesian estimate of where do I concentrate my efforts? Um, well, yeah, so, but but see, here's the thing. Like the whole fascination with that idea, I think, is like, and Harry does get cut up with that, and we spend a lot of time with him uh, mansplaining it to us. Um, but he, uh, like, he misses the point. Like when we get so because he applies, so we've got it this time. He's like, um, like he's just applying it to like, is he alive? Is he not alive? But he does uses the same approach for basically like, is he don't like, how could he not have conquered all of magical Britain if he's like really smart? Um, and that, so, and that my theory on this, if, and I guess we don't know yet, but if you run with the theory of Quirrell is Voldemort and Voldemort was faking it and Quirrell slash, you know, David Monroe slash Voldemort was all an act to fool and to fool everybody for, you know, we don't yet know what purposes, um, or, you know, we don't specifically know, you know, the, the why underneath that. But if that's what was actually going on, then that's like not even on the table of the things Harry's considering and he's slicing and dicing percentages of likelihoods. And he sort of kind of has that in the miscellaneous bucket of, well, or fucking something else. Um, but he's sort of like going through that whole process and his sort of what, you know, his overconfidence in having, you know, think thinking that he's, you know, updating percentages and probabilities of this, that, or the other has like completely like taking them off course. Now I'm, I'm totally wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. Like that whole, like it's all like the explanation for the, the whole thing. And we've had it sort of framed that way of like, oh, you're just looking at it. You know, what do we said? Like asking the wrong questions, I think. Um, that the, the idea that the, oh, he threw the game, like the reason he didn't do it, like your, your puzzlement about the thing is just because you thought about it entirely wrong. Um, and his approach doesn't get us there. And I, and I think like, I think that's on purpose and especially because kind of the way because you combine that with the way Harry was talking was, was sort of um, like very childlike. I think sort of conspicuously, he starts tossing around the word smart and is it dumb, stupid? Um, but in very kind of simplistic terms, which I think sort of like called it out as like, okay, you're really oversimplifying things. And like, it's just turning into kind of like a, you know, ego slash not ego way of looking at it. And I think that sort of like called it out more. This was something that I would have been like super confused about. But then when I saw, I saw, I was like, okay, while you're kind of talking smack all this way in a super like unflattering way, you're also being like totally off the mark. And so I think like, that's what I'm like, oh, okay, this was on purpose. Like him even like being the combination of off the mark and being kind of a jerk in the way he was doing it. Uh, Cause it was, that was also like part of a whole thing about like, okay, this is why I'm smarter than Voldemort. Um, and, and also, and then he conflates, I, I couldn't find, I was looking for it, but he'd like pretty much, cause I think he actually uses the word better um, at one point rather than smarter. 
Um, so it's like, it gets turned into this total, like, you know, it's smart as ego stroking um, and him sort of being kind of very like ham fisted in how doing it. And then, um, and then that combined with, oh, I'm pretty sure like he has ended up like steering himself in the wrong direction with it anyway, I think was kind of a, like a intentional call out to like, these are the pitfalls one can fall into. I think that's that there's definitely a lot that's right there. And it's important to mention too, that like a, a bounded human intellect isn't a perfect Bayesian agent. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, I think, yeah, to like, again, like all of that, like that, none of that's inconsistent. It's sort of like the, and by the way, like you can also like, this isn't gonna, this isn't a golden hammer that's going to work every time. Right. And you know, like the, the mechanic might not consider that it's actually leprechauns that are dancing around in your engine yeah. and making it clunky. Um, but you can't technically rule that possibility out, but there's not really a point in allocating enough probability mass there to like focus your efforts and looking for leprechauns, especially since you've never seen them before. So like, yeah, I think it's like, but, and then, but Harry sort of arrives at a, like an inflated inappropriate level of certainty around things. He doesn't, he doesn't ever really nail it down. It's sort of like, aha, this is what I think it is, but he's like steered himself off in the wrong direction. And the, the important thing is that I guess there's two things. One, he never gets around to actually laying out his final numbers because he doesn't get a chance without a paper and pencil. And <laughs> two, after he did, he wouldn't have arrived at certainty. He would have arrived at a, a probability. And so if, if he came to a probability of, okay, well, after I, after I run these numbers, even though I made them up, I've now weighed, I've now forced myself qualitatively to weigh everything. Um, after doing that, I've got a 10% chance that Voldemort is alive, whereas previously I thought it was, you know, one in a hundred. Still, 10% means I shouldn't be spending most of my time focusing on this hypothesis. I should probably look for other uh, people, you know, because right now what, what he's trying to do is figure out what, where do I focus my efforts? Who is going after my friends? Yeah. The thing that like the payout for this is going to be, assuming my theory is at least mostly right, is that we're going to realize like, oh, you were like, the actual answer wasn't even in your top three. Um, <clears throat> and that, which again, I don't think it's like, like saying like, Oh, this approach is just not valid. I think it was more like, by the way, this isn't going to work all the time. Like e even this can be like wildly wrong sometimes. Totally. Cause you can't, you, as a, as an agent that can't bring in every possible hypothesis and weigh them, yeah. like you're, you're only able to consider the stuff you you think of. And so like to him, he, he never plugs and chugs. What if Quirrell is Voldemort? What would I expect to see? Yeah. Or I think uh, even if like, if you, uh, even if you skip that, cause I think we sort of like conspicuously at some, as he's uh, chewing on this also with, uh, with Moody, we talk about, okay, maybe Quirrell is David Monroe, but they still sort of like have off to the side. And then there's this other Voldemort guy. Um, but even like, regardless of like Voldemort alive, not alive, <clears throat> Because at least to me, like the thing that the sort of key explainer around, you know, how how is it that Voldemort didn't win um, is because he threw the game um, and or at least, you know, was thrown was intentionally like being, you know, melodramatic and like the whole thing with the dark mark. The, the silliness of the dark mark is because it was dramatic and cool and is the kind of thing that would have served his purposes for just getting people wound up because the purpose of the thing was not to be effective. The purpose of the thing was to get a reaction out of people. I like um, that a lot, especially yeah. with the dark mark, because yeah. there's there's no reason to have it be a visible thing, right? I'm assuming he could, yeah. like, I don't know, uh, literally carve, you know, a, a mark onto the inside of their skull or something, yeah. where where it's impossible to detect on the outside. But no, the point is to have a brand that people could see because it inspires fear in people. 
Yeah. Um, and that's a, and like, cause Harry keeps like correctly pointing out these like shortcomings in both. So like, okay, the dark mark is, is a dumb idea. Um, you know, the security precautions at the Wizengamut are, are bad. Um, but like the, like his, Harry's thought as to the Occam's razor is, oh, this must be because nobody's as smart as me. Um, and that, that, and I think, and I think sort of like that's on purpose that like it, it's kind of showing us kind of the, the, the lazy uh, thought process that is uh, and kind of like overly simplistic and that there's a whole bunch of other things that even though while he's, you know, telling himself, he's like quoting, you know, considering this, that or the other, he's really just sort of like sticking to kind of like he's hiding from himself that, um, that he's, that he keeps trying to like nudge the needle towards, well, cause nobody's as smart as me just cause he likes that feeling. Um, I think that there, there might be something to that. The other thing is that like, he is taking as a given that Voldemort was trying to take over Britain, which, as you said, one reason that he may have failed after 10 years of trying, because as Harry's look, well, I, I like that scene when he just like, all right, give me five minutes to sit and think about this. And as he's arguing with himself, one of his whatever segments says uh, like, OK, right. Why didn't he win in three days? And it's like, OK, well, uh, you know, it, like I, I think it was uh, what? trying and failing after 10 years using only conventional terrorist tactics, that's just not even trying. And like he, I think he almost arrives at the possibility, but he yeah. doesn't get there. And that's the thing. Cause he's taking it like, okay, so Voldemort was trying to take over the country. I feel like this wouldn't be that hard. He, he doesn't, he doesn't hit the point. And I, I, I like where you're, where you're going with that. Like if, if that wasn't what he was trying to do, then that explains perfectly why he didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, and, that, yeah, and, and explains all of the all of the other weird like not immediately obvious but then once you think about it like just the weird kind of inconsistencies are also all explained by that <clears throat> which is kind of a more i guess i mean it seems he harry kept calling it like a complexity penalty for the theory but it seems like yes more complex but more plausible than just like you know only one person is the smartest person in the room um yeah, and like I, that's sort of a very simple answer. Harry keeps falling back to is like Wizarding World's kind of ignorance of things that Harry already knew. He keeps sort of conflating with, oh, well, they just you know must be kind of you know not all there and just not capable of entertaining these complex thoughts. <laughs> and we've already seen that, like you know, even like Dumbledore is capable of you know thinking in ways Harry has not. Um, and I so and I, and I think that was kind of um, like that's among the points of this was like to fall into that, like it is easier to fall into these kind of levels of false confidence than you think. And to sort of like keep like a baseline level of, of uncertainty about what you think kind of should always be there. And that we're kind of seeing like Harry not doing it. I I think we're seeing him doing it. It's just, he's not considering enough possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, Like both. Yeah. We're seeing like, Oh, but by the way, um, like here's the, the the part of it he missed. Yeah, like I mean, he even says detail. like it's I'm I'm not looking for certainty. That's not how this works. I'm looking for probabilities and where to focus, like where to concentrate my efforts. And so, um, like and again, part like for me, the reason I was disappointed in it is like he could have better informed himself before he sat and thought about it. Like there's this great line here where uh, Snape says, "Foolishness, utter foolishness. The dark mark has not faded, nor has its master." And then Harry, see, that's what I mean by formerly insufficient Bayesian evidence. Sure, it sounds all grim and foreboding and stuff, but is it that unlikely for a magical mark to stay around after the, after the marker dies? Suppose while the mark is certain to continue, the Dark Lord sent... So, and then, I mean, 
rather than ask that question and wait for an answer, he just goes on. Yeah. And and so like if you had paused and said, wait, hold on. If a wizard dies, does their magical marks always go away? And if the answer to that was yes, then he would be like, oh, then that's really compelling evidence. But for and all also we- that, that would have subtracted from the like, oh, because Voldemort is stupid. You know, that made the Voldemort is stupid theory less likely. Yeah, my 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 main gripe with with his all of his Bayesian reasoning here is that he doesn't actually try to get data when it might be available. Yeah. And, you know, so he I think he assigns like what a 20 percent chance to the mark surviving the death of the master or something. I'm not sure. Um, like or maybe 100 to one doesn't really matter. Point is, is that Dumbledore probably could have given him an actual answer. Yeah. The answer might be, yes, when when the when the wizard dies, it's his his magical marks like this always leave. That's just how ma- that's how wizard deaths work. Or he could have said, no, it actually, you know, magical marks live off live on past the death of the wizard uh in almost every case Dumbledore might have said point is he didn't he he asked but he didn't wait for an answer and that, that's what bugged me and if and if he had like if, you know if if he then had to like knock down the likelihood that it was just that Voldemort is stupid then he'd have been forced to like try to you know add in a few more he, he had to expand the possibilities he was looking at and then he maybe could have gotten closer to it or at least it, it would have because he's sort of a little bit hinted at oh this seems like to eat there must be some other reason that seems this easy but he kind of like then just shied away from it and maybe if he you know gotten more accurate about you know dialing down the oh because nobody's as smart as me theory he'd been forced to you know put a little more likelihood onto what's probably a closer direction on it yeah and it, like i said the, the other constraint of of thinking as a you know, a human with a with a squishy meat brain as as a Bayesian agent is that you're not able to consider every possibility. So you could do everything right with your calculus and still arrive at the wrong answer. And that like that's the point. It's not a magic. It's not a it's a it's not a magic button that you press and arrive at the correct answer. It's it's the one that tells you, okay, given what I know, where what should I what should I believe? Um, and I just noticed in here as a complete jarring change of pace here. That in the text it says, uh, after uh, Dumbledore explains that he took Harry's parents to the Department of Mysteries, Harry says, "Can I go to this Department of Mysteries place and hear the prophet, the recorded prophecy?" He says, "Department of Mysteries" in the text in the audiobook, which makes me think in the older version of the text he says, "Ministry of uh, Mysteries." And to me, that made it funnier because, like I said, he's just focused on like, mm-hmm. wait, there's there's tape recordings of every prophecy. Like, can I go there? I want to go to there. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to there. Um, so, oh, and I did like the bit where, so as Harry's kind of like, you know, deducing like the nature of how the dark mark stuff works, just based on like asking those questions, like he gets close enough to it that it like flips a magic switch and Snape is then suddenly able to say like, oh, I am now allowed to speak of the dark mark. I like how it's just sort of like weirdly like magic that's affecting people's like normal behavior. Like it's almost like it was not almost, it's like mind control on Snape and we get to like watch it be undone in a way that everybody sort of takes very kind of matter of factly. It was kind of like really cool. Cause then I like he's that like, too. okay, now I, now I can talk and now finally let me tell all the shit that I've been wanting to tell you forever. Yeah. And, and it, and it shows that the, the dark Mark wasn't just a tattoo that he put on his yeah. followers, that it, it actually bound them in, in at least some ways, which is pretty cool. He's just and also like, didn't thank you, Mister Potter. That it was like yeah. that. It was also a little. Oh yeah, and that, that was the other thing I noticed. It actually got some sort of like sincere. We do see a little bit of a shift uh, between Snape and Harry um, 
actually quite a bit towards the end is when um when Snape asked Harry to tell him about how Lily died. Um, but that like, yeah, it's a lot more, a lot, uh, they become a lot more allies in this, in this chapter. And we kind of get a better, like explicit look of what side Snape is on. Assuming I'm not wrong about that. But. He seems, he seems like he, I think it's a, a grimace of angry triumph. He says, headmaster, I can now speak freely of the mark. And then he goes on to explain exactly basically what Harry laid out. And then, uh, like, Dumbledore's just like, ah, that explains why Black would escape Peter's notice and why when we hide Igor Kargaroff, uh before the wizard got his mark, you know, showed him showed itself whether he willed it or not. And like, he's like, okay, that explains stuff. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and the service, I, I don't think I quite followed, but there was something about how they worked that was, that we ended up seeing was intentionally misleading, right? That it was going to. Yeah. That. Uh, make them, it, give them, uh, make them think that some people weren't when they were. Right. So the, the dark mark will reveal themselves if they want it, will reveal itself on the on the wearer if they want to show it, or presumably if Voldemort wants to see it for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but if uh, if they're just suspected of being a Death Eater, it doesn't show up. It only shows up against the, the, the person's will if they've been discovered as a Death Eater. And that's how it seems to identify Death Eaters, but only ones who are already known. And then that lets them, people think that the... It, fooled them into thinking they had a valid test for it when they didn't. And then death eaters were flying under the radar. Exactly. Which makes a really clever use of it. So that's pretty cool. Do we know, did Voldemort have a dark mark? And that's making me wonder, does Quirrell have a dark mark? Um, We wouldn't know. uh, Quirrell explicitly showed his bare arm to uh, Rita Skeeter. But we just said that that, that could have been a misdirection. Like that right. he could have had one and was pretending that. So, hmm. Yeah, that's, doesn't matter cause that's the best thing about this, right? Yeah. Did, I, I'm trying to remember from the original. But, um, I don't know necessarily that Voldemort had a dark mark. It's not like he's got a, it's not like Hitler had to walk around with swastikas on him. Yeah, it's, I don't think, I, I don't remember if Voldemort had one or not, but I don't see yeah. the point of why he would. He knows that he's a Death Eater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's for his benefit. Yeah, he he's identifiable as the you know the guy with the glowing red eyes and snake face. He he doesn't need a brand to show that he's on the the bad guy side. Yeah, um, I guess unless there's some like other kind of magical significance to like if it does something more that we don't yet know about. But given all the other things Voldemort's able to do, Voldemort slash Quirrell is able to do, you know, without a wand, without talking, um, he's probably he's probably not held to those rules. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll have to keep keep going on and see what we find out. Um, <laughs> you need to get, like get a, an official ruling from the peanut gallery. At, at what point are you allowed to admit that Quirrell is Voldemort? So we can you know quit with the the charade. Except then it's like, well, how? Because I probably you know I certainly don't have all the details right. So you're gonna feel stupid when it turns out not to be Voldemort. I know it's gonna be Ludo Bagman or Dumbledore or Hagrid or something uh, I you know, out of left field. I don't think so. We'll yeah, see. Yeah, that would be weird. I'd be very disappointed if it's something in left field. <laughs> All right. We get a point of view switch to Harry's perspective. And then this is where he's saying like where he he's frustrated because he can't explain why he actually disagrees without giving specific examples. Yeah. And the main thing is he's like, look, if I was trying to take over the, the country, it like he says uh, the he says it was ridiculous. The magical world was super saturated with ways to cheat. And if, if you, if you can't take over the country with not just being a powerful wizard, but having inter magical interdicted knowledge from Salazar Slytherin himself, 
you just you're you're you suck and that that's what he's coming at um he's he's modeling voldemort like the like the voldemort from the books from the canon books where that guy he did actually seem to be trying to take over the country and he just was totally inept at it there was also less about like in you know there was no interdict of merlin in the canon books so you know dumbledore was probably just as powerful as voldemort but like running around with a few dozen, you know, jerks to start, I don't know, terrorizing people is not the best way to take over a nation in a country that has polyjuice, confundus, false memories, legitimacy. Um, now, what, like, do, what are the theories that Harry entertains, though? I mean, so his big one is, well, just everybody's stupid. And then and then I guess it's also um, that Voldemort really did die. Um and so that's why nothing has happened in the last 10 years. But that doesn't explain. He's still got to fall back to the everybody is stupid theory to explain why Voldemort, why Voldemort wasn't able to just do it right away before he got even got killed. Um, but does it, I, like there is no other theory. It's like the only one he's got is either people are stupid or miscellaneous bucket. Um, does he? I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think he actually like forms any other theory. Yeah, I think that he doesn't really get a chance to. Um, so he is at the point, what I like about it is that, you know, it's one thing for Dumbledore and Snape who he doesn't really have like a great degree of confidence in, um, to say, no, no, Voldemort is, is smart and scary. It's when McGonagall says, please, Harry, I beg you take the dark Lord seriously. He's far more dangerous than transfiguration. Yeah. And And then then he almost does. He like starts tossing things around, but he does, he never really, they like don't officially make it into his, you know, list of possibilities. Yeah. He's just gonna so I toss think them it, around. He seems to like look at them and he's like, nah, and he like throws them on the floor. He doesn't like Well, his his two main reasons for thinking Voldemort was dumb was that he failed to take over the country in ten years when it seems like it would take a week tops. And that he had the only knowledge he had about the Dark Mark was from Draco, that it was just literally a tattoo you got that said where, you know, I'm an enemy spy. And he's like, Okay, this guy's a fucking idiot, which if you're starting from nowhere, that sounds like an okay kind of conclusion. Um, yeah, he's but now, starts, now that like he a now that both of those at, have been challenged, yeah, he a little bit hints at, but only you know, like he sort of says it and then just tosses it away. The uh, that oh, it must be harder than it seems to be. Um, which apparently, like my theory is right. That's actually not the explanation either. Uh, but like he doesn't really. It seems like he he never really departs from his favorite theory he he tries to like like i said he gets some way into it then he gets then moody shows up and distracts him but yeah. he does say maybe there's some other reason voldemort wasn't fighting all out back then yeah. and uh it's like okay look you know we don't know that it's possible to take it over take over the country that easily and uh it's it's um yeah he doesn't i think get very far in entertaining the idea that there's some other reason that voldemort wasn't going all out back then except for to name the reason uh, or, or to name, to name the idea yeah the idea and i guess like to be fair to um, be fair uh, he um he doesn't he doesn't land at a like okay these are the well other than the like oh everybody's dumb but you know he doesn't kind of land at like okay these are the things uh, these are the possibilities i think they are and they're sort of relative you know probabilities he doesn't like give himself an official state of this is what I think he does. It It is just sort of kind of interrupted. But, yeah. He doesn't get to finish. I, I'd be curious where he lands on it or maybe, you know, he'll get a chance to do more math later and we'll get to see. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not so much concerned with like what, you know, he comes out at a 23.68% chance that Voldemort is alive or whatever. What, what 
but the important thing at the end of this is how much of his effort should he spend on dealing with like, okay, maybe it's this mortal dark wizard or maybe it's somebody else. Yeah. Like for me, like part like a big part of the takeaway was um, he was being, he was fooling himself with his math. Not that like the approach is bad, but like it gave him a, a false sense or was leading him into a false sense of certainty and away from, from the real thing. And I think like that was like the addition, it was like the, and also by the way, don't rely on this, you know, like, the, like, like you were saying, like, this is not the end all be all solution. This is a solution. And we're also seeing the ways in which Harry is kind of misusing it. Yeah. I mean, he, he's doing, I almost want to say he's doing the best he can, but like I said, the main thing that, that bugged me about it is that he's, he's not doing the best he can. He could be asking for numbers to inform his, his, his estimates here. And that, that's what bugged me is like, you're sitting in the room with the oldest, most powerful wizard in the world right now. And you could ask him some of these questions. <laughs> Um, but you know, that again, I, and this is something that like maybe isn't what we're supposed to get as a vibe in the beginning, but it's, it's very clear now that like Harry isn't the perfect rationalist he believes himself to be. Yeah. Um, he's, he's got the tools. It's, I mean, you know, I think we've used this analogy before. It's like a, it's like someone new to programming who's just, who knows just enough to be really dangerous, but they're not actually good. Um, and it took me wrong. He doesn't suck. He's better than, than yeah. I guess, you know, everyone except for maybe Quirrell at, at thinking quote rationally, but, um, he's like, he doesn't seem to, to, to consider like, okay, wait, I, I need to, to also throw in the possibility that I might just have no fucking clue what's going on here. Yeah. And I like, like, because it wasn't, I think I easily could have, it could have not occurred to me that, you know, Harry's just you know, conspicuously wrong in the idea that he's coming up with. And I think if I had not noticed that, then I would have been very both confused and irritated that it would have been easy for this chapter to come across as that we're like, that all the mansplaining coming from Harry is, you know, just awesome. And the way it's supposed to be that like, if I, if I wasn't able to see like, Oh no, there are faults in this that are here on purpose that are probably going to be significant later. Um, I like that helped me sort, sort of like, like that's a lot of the disconnect has been like the stuff that rubs me the wrong way thinking like, Oh, but I'm, you know, just supposed to just think this is cool. Um, but to be able to see like, okay, no, this is, this is here on purpose. Um, and, and the impression I'm getting is valid, you know, not necessarily entirely valid, or whatever, but like, yes, there's something to the thing that you're thinking. Um, so I'm glad I think if I had like missed this, then this really would have bugged me. Uh, Cause I think I would have misunderstood uh, where this was going. No, I like that. Yeah. Um, there was another uh, um, consideration that he has when he's thinking about it. And this is what like he comes up more at the end of the chapter when he's talking with Snape. He, for some reason, well, because of his memory of when his parents died and how Voldemort seemed mildly inclined not to kill his mother. Um, like the, and of course, why would Voldemort know the prophecy? Um, so because of all those things, he's wondering like, okay, who told Voldemort and why? And so that's why he thinks that there might be an additional line in there, something about how Voldemort would immediately die if he confronted the Potters. Um, mm-hmm. It turns out that that wasn't the case as we learned at the end of the chapter, but he, yeah. th- it like, that's why he was super suspicious about that because it's like, okay, well, it, it seems like sending Voldemort there by giving him the prophecy was a deliberate move. And why, why would that have happened? Um, so he's just analyzing this from like being trying to be as paranoid as possible, 
But as Matt I says, not paranoid enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, like, we've gone this far. We haven't actually met Moody, or Moody hasn't shown up yet. Yeah. So the, then this Moody, Moody kicks point. in the door here in a second. Yeah. Metaphorically. Oh, no, wait, not yet, actually. We cut to, uh, to the, f- the dinner table. Room. Well, no, that's a, it's a weird. I thought it was a little, um, a little odd pacing. So he like comes in, he does like come in through the flu. Um, but it's basically just sort of, ha ha, I am moody. And then it cuts to, um, the dining room with the, the children acting foolish. <laughs> um, and, and then we come back with, that was kind of an odd jump. Yeah. I, I think I, I don't have enough literary analysis to, to I don't, no, no, articulate I, I mean, like, like how that, I think, I think it was a fun it was little break. Like odd, yeah. It was, a, I was an odd spot. It was just like, yeah, it was kind of an odd jump in between. Yeah. To then come back. Like if we, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But. I don't know where else I would have put it, but it was just a funny, like at the end of the day, I like this because, because it's just hilarious. Like they're it's, it's the kids again, as Harry would be annoyed about assuming everything that they heard about this is true. You know, Hermione tried to kill Draco Malfoy. Um, where Harry's annoyed that they're even taking that that like premise seriously, mm-hmm. but they're all running with that, and they're like, okay, well, what could explain it? Was it a love triangle? Um, I know and, the theories get increasingly silly. Yeah, and then of course uh, you've got the Chaos Legion, and I think he pulled out that quote. Um, Look, you don't realize, like Harry Potter told us all, if you didn't predict something would happen, if you didn't, if it took you completely by surprise then what you believed about the world when you didn't see it coming isn't enough to explain. Dean's voice trolled off as he saw nobody was listening. It's completely <laughs> hopeless, isn't it? And I assume then like right after this, I, I assume this is a whole bunch of name dropping of uh, people from the fan base because there's a, a whole bunch of names in here that I did not recognize. Although I'm guessing that Sarah Variable isn't an actual person. I, I think a lot of them are like uh, um, whatever they're, yeah, it's like internet like handles a, yeah, and stuff like a bunch of call outs to yeah. people yeah and then i like this too I like that name uh, <laughs> um i think there's I, so basically uh th- this is the one that i liked the most i think chloe's right said a foreign looking wizard boy who oh it doesn't matter who always introduced himself as adrian turnipseed those parents had actually named him <laughs> mad drongo i'm sure those are both references yes. um i think this whole time there's been he lowered his voice ominously a hidden hand Shaping all that's happened. One person is behind everything from the beginning. And I don't mean Snape either. <gasps> you don't mean, yes, the real one behind it all is Tracy, Tracy Davis. Davis. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a joke I make with with my rationalist nerd friends once in a while. Um, was where, Tracy Davis the boogeyman? No, no. The part where at the end where Dean and Lavender, because they're in the Chaos Legion, uh, Dean, Lavender, and Seamus, and they're like off in their own little corner. Um and it's like, oh, yeah, I totally know what you mean. Like, it's a wonder he didn't crack and start killing everyone ages ago because, you know, they're all annoyed because everyone's not thinking clearly. And then Dean says, personally, I'd say the scary part is that could have been us. Yeah, it's a good thing we're all perfectly sane now. <laughs> and that that's the self-aware joke I make with my friends all the time. Where, oh, yes, of course. Well, we're perfectly sane. So, of course, we're thinking about this, this seriously. We're not actually as full of ourselves as people would like to believe. Um, uh, there, there is much self-aware humor involved. So let's see here. All right. So then we cut back to hypothesis. Oh yeah. I forgot to mention all these start with hypothesis and then the time at the top. Um, so I'm sure that the time matters a bit because I think when he, especially when he's doing the time jumping. Yeah. Um, but I honestly, on all my readings of this, I've not paid attention to him because I guess I'm bad at reading. Dates and times, yeah. 
Yeah. So we just finished Hypothesis Hermione Granger, and then we got Hypothesis GL. And I don't know if you like took time to sit and think about what that could mean when you read it. I know I didn't. So um, I only registered long enough. Was like, oh, that's. <laughs> I, I'm more registered. Was like, oh, that's something I'm now choosing not to take the time to try to figure out. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it'll tell me, or like, won't, oh, I'll be annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we we get uh, this is where Moody jumps in, and I like this because he like comes in like I don't know, just kind of like it's a full assault. And wand up, mm-hmm. take looks at the entire room, has his wand cover the everything he's looking at, and Harry kind of like freaks out a bit and draws his wand. Um, then, of course, the first thing Mad Eye says is, "I suppose you think this room is secure." <laughs> <laughs> I liked reading it through a second time that um, thinking that um, Mad Eye would have come in and would have seen like what four Harrys in the room at the same time, right? Um, and that, so then having to like read this again and, and thinking that like, okay, and everything he's saying was also him like lightning fast deciding, you know, how he was going to react and what he was he going to, that he immediately decided to pretend he couldn't see the other three or four. Which is fun and raises the question that apparently the deathly hallow of the cloak invisibility is uh, vulnerable not, to the yeah. eye of Vance, which is what the, the eye is called here. Um, which is kind of a bummer. You'd think that, all right, this is the, like the magical way to stay invisible. And, uh, this guy's magical eyeball can see right through it. Yeah. But every, every, the, the superhero rule is that if you have only one power, then your power is the most powerful version of that in the universe. Like, which is why Superman is bullshit because he's supposed to be faster than the flash. Like, no, the, all the flash does is be fast. He has to be the fastest. Well, all the cloak does is make you invisible. You have to be the most invisible. I guess so. Except, see, but it belongs to Harry, and it's and it's a magic item. But well, I guess that's also true of the Eye Advance. But but he's Harry, so Harry is like Superman in the in this metaphor. So he doesn't necessarily have to, you know, be the most in because he's got more than one thing going on. You're right. He just gets to be the smartest. Yeah, glad to hear it, hear you say it. it. <laughs> <laughs> got him. All right. Oh yeah, that's my other takeaway was the the uh, yeah that. Jumping back real quick, that if his theory was like, oh, he must be stupid, like we know, we know that Quirrell is not stupid. So that, I think that was like the loudest takeaway of like, oh no, you're just off on this one. That's so, a good point. Anyway. Yeah. If, if uh, so, assume Voldemort's smart. Who else do I know that's really smart? Especially like in the way that I'm trying to consider. Oh, it's Quirrell. It would have been really cool if the thought occurred to him. But again, and it was given, cool. It's like this is Harry's, totally the like think, operating at one level higher than you thing. Right. It's like, oh, Harry didn't even see like what's the force for the trees. And yeah, the guy straight up told him, I'm like, I'm playing 4D chess with you and you're losing. Yeah. <laughs> um, that said, uh, it's completely understandable, I think, from Harry's perspective to not assume that his, one of his teachers is possessed by the ghost of, of this evil dark lord because from, from everything Harry see, knows, if, none of that uh, has a good probability. Yeah. But we did like we've seen a couple times, I mean, we've seen a lot. And then I, I think a couple times in this chapter, like we do see Harry's almost like feels almost magical, um, aversion to even considering Quirrell as the bad guy. Um, like his brain just keeps like rejecting the thought. Um, especially like as like increasingly obvious it is that there's some kind of fuckery going on with Quirrell, like more other people are kind of getting in on it, but it especially seems so weird that like the level to which Dumbledore and Harry, are just sticking their fingers in their ears about Quirrell is uh, is weird. 
it's not even, not even so that like it, it feels like oh this is definitely like part of the, the plot that's going on here because it's sort of getting increasingly odd i think it's interesting like i'm trying to think of like a not i don't know emotionally challenging example but like you know if you're if you're considering a hypothesis that if true the answer would really freak you out and you don't want to know it yeah. you might just be kind of like inclined even if you're trying your best to not consider the possibility and yeah. so like again I, I i think again from where harry's at there's no real reason for him to suspect quarrel would be voldemort um but oh totally he, there's so many reasons but even for the things that everybody harry, knows harry, he's just harry doesn't even really think that voldemort's powerful. alive well, yeah, but see, that's a, like there's so much of what's going on with Quirrell that should be like pinging everybody, be like, "What the fuck is this?" And everybody's just not. Um, that no, he should totally be. There should be all kinds of suspicion. He's even starting to get like, "Oh, maybe there's you know, maybe something's going on with Quirrell." But the level of Quirrell's power um, should have. And I guess we kind of have this like David Monroe theory coming in, which he could like latch onto. But even before he had heard any of this, like he should be super suspicious of how powerful. Quirrell is and it seems like and like nobody is and it did start off like uh seeming like that um like what you're like his hero worship is the reason why he you know really really doesn't want to think that that's true and and i like that's still a huge part of it but it's even starting like it's getting so implausible that it started not not that that's like bad for the but like it's being like oh what is going on with the harry that he's like that it's screaming in his face and uh, and he's not looking at it. It's becoming more like, oh, there's like there are external forces, you know, keeping him from thinking about it. A hidden some, hand, like, a hidden hand. Yeah, it doesn't feel like not so much in some sort of like explicit mind control. Well, I guess that could be Coral doing that, but it just feels like oh, there's more going on. There is something forcing Harry to to run away from that idea. I uh, think it's just total, straight like, up a huge like, question mark you know, Dumbledore though. Imagining like, that your longtime partner is cheating on you. And you're like, no, I'm not even going to consider it. I'm going to ignore the fact that they're being cagey with their phone and lying about being at work or something. Like, I think, I think it's, uh, I mean, he, he's far from the point where he's even considered the possibility. But I think if he, if someone had like, or I guess no, when they bring up the de- the, de- the defense professor as a suspect, he kind of just dismisses it because he's like, there's no way yeah. my man, my good friend, yeah. Professor Quirrell, ever would do this. Um, he's such a so stand-up he, guy. Ex- <laughs> if there's one beacon of goodness it's professor yes. you know but whatever Clearly. um so Clearly stabby mcmurder fascist <laughs> um so. I th- yeah i mean yeah and i think it's still like almost all that but it seems like it's getting like the volume on on that uh is is going is getting so much louder that it feels like oh it's getting to be even more than that like it's some kind of there's some additional unnatural explanation on top of it i'm into it let's see what happens yeah. man um so then i like where just like harry and moody are properly introduced where uh like uh moody says to dumbledore he's like so you know that include him like because dumbledore says there's only friends here Mm -hmm. and he says well if harry potter is not our friend then we're all certainly doomed so we may as well assume that he is and he's he's got his wand like not quite pointing at harry he says boy almost drew on me just then and then harry's like uh sorry you looked a bit combat ready (laughs) combat ready constant vigilance a eh, lad it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you oh, that's a good line and this is where like i this is the moment that i like where dumbledore kind of like leans back and there's like actually some twinkle in his eye and he says 
Harry, this is Alistair Moody, also called Mad Eye, who will command the Order of the Phoenix after me, if anything should happen to me, that is. Alistair, this is Harry Potter, and I have every hope that the two of you shall get along fantastically. <laughs> I like there's like no single thing Harry could have said better to get on Moody's good side. Right. And it's not paranoia to really have to get you. I do like this where uh, he says, um, uh, Dollar Moody asks him how you, he pulled off the thing with the Dementor, and Harry's like trying to think of what to say here and he says um because of course moody already checked he says i you know i asked uh beth martin um she said it came straight from the pit and no one gave it any special instructions along the way of course she could be lying and he says that there wasn't anything there wasn't a sneaky trick to that one i just did it the hard way of course i could also be be lying lying. (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot of fun like just during your regular day-to-day when you're walking around Mm -hmm. like it, just for a few minutes to put yourself in Moody's shoes where like you're checking out at the grocery store. Okay. That'll be, you know, 60 bucks and 21 cents. That's like, that's what you want me to think. Like if, to think. if you just, if you couch everything, it's, it's hard to keep from laughing. <laughs> yeah. So then this one, so they, they're kind of just going through the like, okay, if, how does it start? They're just like, okay, if Voldemort, if, if Voldemort didn't really die, um, and he's now pretending to be somebody else. You know, who could it be? And Moody gets and so straight they, all that pre-thinking. He just jumps in and says, I have a lead on one of all these recent hosts. Uh, like he, he just jumps in and says, yeah, I, I think I found a guy that he's possessing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, and that, but the, the reason for that being that like, oh, Gilroy Lockhart has suddenly become way too powerful. So that makes it smell like um, that Voldemort has, has taken him over. Um, and I thought it was, and so they kind of go around, you know, saying, well, A, they're like, okay, Gilroy Lockhart was a shit student when he was at Hogwarts. Um, and then they kind of start rattling off like all of this, you know, feats of strength he has, uh, recently done. And they're like, aha, so he must be like suddenly super powerful Voldemort. Um, and I sort of liked it like, and it was like kind of another example of like, oh, you guys are just like totally off base again because we know doing this is like no Gilroy Lockhart just memory charms everybody into thinking that he did a thing um and that like that's not on especially considering that like memory charms has been a a topic of conversation recently but they, they don't consider that like oh maybe all of this is bullshit well um, I think what I like about it is you know they they have a a plausible candidate for who they think it might be and yes, when memory charms are a thing, they're they're just looking for like, okay, well, who who looks like they're gaining power too quickly? Who definitely doesn't yeah. seem like they would have earned that power? Um, apparently, he received a troll in his defense owls and didn't bother taking his newts, which are like the graduation exams. Um, so then, like again, Moody getting straight to the point, he's like, three in the morning, work for you, Albus. Moody should be <laughs> or Lockhart should be at his home tonight. And Harry's just like, hold, hold on a Wait, second. What? what happens at three in the morning? Um, it's a wizard Guantanamo. Right. And so like, you know, I think after the whole thing, Moody says something along the lines of like, look, he's clearly up to something. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. But if it's not the Voldemort business, like, let's not yeah. be the ones. Let's let's not. Well, we'll get to that in a bit. But at the end of the day, they know something's up with this guy. And they then they also they're looking for somebody that something is up with. And all right, cool. That's that. That's our guy. That's our our lead. Um so yeah, Harry is like trying to ask, like you know, politely. Because um, again, Moody's, uh, I, I I think his character is just perfect. You know, he's the battle scarred. He wears like leather armor, and 
like Harry is like, okay, well, uh, I'm just worried that someone innocent might be might be hurt. Oh yeah, uh, he does drop the word Horcrux in front of Harry. Yeah. Uh, I, which, I mean, so, yeah, I put out. that in my notes, but um, how? What's the context that's brought up in again? Because it doesn't seem super relevant to talking about Lockhart. Uh, they said, like, Harry is saying, I don't want you to run in there and kill him. He's like, no, we're not going to kill him. Well, we need what's locked up in his head. If we're lucky, uh, he'll remember what the Horcrux looked like. So I think he's assuming that Harry is fully in the loop. And I think we heard the word Horcrux in McGonagall's head at some point. Um, But Dumbledore explicitly didn't say the word in front of Harry. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the first time Harry has heard it. Yeah. What what stuck out for me. So maybe it's less true if we've already heard it, but... um, like realizing, oh, if, if the concept of Horcruxes was held off way until now, um, like we already know the Horcrux is be a pretty big deal, but like um, it's just like it, it double underlined Horcrux as like its importance to the plot as I'm up here on the ladder of paranoia. Love it. Um, yeah, because it seems sort of like conspicuously late in the story for this idea to suddenly come up like it would like like that it was being sort of like hidden because I think it would have just been sort of like casually dropped a few more times um so anyway yeah I think uh it was dropped at least once um but not in this chapter it was it was sometime previously where they're sitting there speculating and Dumbledore says uh like there's a dark ritual um whereby like oh, so a, a wizard can impart yeah. part of their soul onto an object, which must be or then becomes a device of power. And then McGonagall says in her head, Horcrux, though he's not saying that word in front of Harry for some reason. Um, but yeah, I think that that might have been the first time we heard about it. Although in defense of, you know, the word not being dropped left and right so far, we never heard of the word until what, book six? <laughs> yeah, I like the rules are different for this because like all of us, you know, having come... Yeah, like we we know how this plot unfolds. The, the how the original version of this whole thing unfolds. So, and we start dropping the word "deathly hallow" by like chapter twenty, and that didn't show up till book seven as like a total retcon. So, um, anyway, uh, Moody is annoyed that this you know uh, uh, I don't know what you call it like uh, punk um, kid. Yeah, that, that this punk kid is like, what's he trying to tell us what to do? That you know we're dealing with serious shit. Why is this kid here trying to boss us around? When Harry's like, can you at least try not to hurt this person in case he's not, you know, a, a bad guy? Um, so it's like, man, I yeah. wonder if like the the uh, the stakes are lower for wizards. Like, you know, I could, he could like lose an armor, like whatever. We'll put it back. Right. He's <laughs> got a hard wizard head. Yeah. Geez. Um, let's see. There was another moment earlier on that I totally forgot about, and I was going to bring up, and then forgot about again. So I will just push on here. Um, Moody. Yeah, then it just turns out, yeah, Moody's just like, you know, shut the fuck up. Um, and then he's just sort of like, then the excuse for, all right, if, uh, I'm going to give you the chance that anybody who's allowed to, to get a tap on me during a duel is allowed to mouth off to me, but otherwise you got to shut up. Yeah. Harry does demonstrate that he is at least a strong enough Aquamans to not, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, lose yeah. to Moody, which is pretty cool. Yeah. But like, just barely like Moody's. Yeah. Uh, especially cause like, Moody says like, Oh, you're a little out of practice. Like Harry just feels like it was this super huge onslaught of a legilemon. Um, yeah. And he's barely able to fight it off. Yeah. Apparently the like advanced tactic of trying to break someone's occlumency barrier. I'm imagining when he was studying with Mr. Bester, it was more like someone beating his shields with a hammer mm-hmm. and uh, Moody is just like, all right, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to set the person on the front of your mind on fire in my brain when I'm shooting it at yours and so 
like Harry is the the person he's pretending to be was hallucinating that he was on fire. And it's like this, this cool description of like almost going insane. Um, yeah. And, uh, and then kind of the impression I got was like, okay, yeah, it worked. But if that had been for real, you wouldn't have fooled anybody. Right. Valdi's the Valdi isn't like any other legilimens in recorded history. He doesn't need to look you in the eyes. And if your shields are that rusty, he'd creep in so softly you'd never notice a thing. I wish I didn't put that uh file that back that every time uh Harry has tried to bullshit quarrel that it has never worked, even a little. That's assuming that legilimency isn't like magic that would interact. Right? Um, oh yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> Um, which I'm not, I'm not sure if it counts or not. Maybe it's just spells. Um, so, you know, something to... Also, that could be just the whole, like, oh, you're the same person rule. What Jeez. do you mean? If, if, if Harry... If, you know, on the weird theory that Harry and Coral are both Voldemort, <laughs> that could change the whole... All the rules for how legilimency works are up in the air. It could be anything from that point. Oh, because you're, like, just reading your own mind? Yeah. So maybe it makes it, like, you know, super easy barely an inconvenience yeah or maybe it makes it impossible maybe even beyond that just the whole like mixing magic thing maybe it's just like well it's just yeah that can't work who knows who knows i'm saying up in the air anything could be true at this point right so uh let's see i do like how um yeah so then like you said moody says all right cool land a tap on me and then i'll give you the the right to talk back to me um which is kind of like again moody's character for me is just perfectly yeah. fleshed out sounds like totally in character for him um i thought it was like you can tell like the there's you can like besides it being gruff you can like read the whole time they kind of like underlying we're on the same side vibe to it like oh, i actually like you but fuck you right but i like up, you punk. but i don't respect you yet yeah yeah so harry gets up he's like all right let's go then and then promptly gets knocked out and, and then gets knocked out again. And gets knocked yeah. out again. What I like about it is he wakes up in Dumbledore's office like 40 something minutes later. And um, he's like, Dumbledore's like, oh, so this is your plan all along? He's like, of course. Notice I'm doing this right away rather than pausing to think of it. And so then he goes back under the invisibility cloak and watches himself just fall down when he goes to stand, up, stand off with Moody. Oh, and, and that's what the line is looking for. Dumbledore pulls this out. Um, Harry is like, I didn't even see him move. And Dumbledore says, you were standing two paces away from Alistair Moody and you took your eyes off his wand. <laughs> like, of course he didn't. He, he's like he's not a like, super badass for no reason, kid. <laughs> yeah. I like how like normally we've had all of this like, oh dear God, no, you can't just, you know, fuck around with the time turner for, you know, no good reason. But they're like, ah, he's dueling with Moody. We'll make it. He gets a pass on this one. Yeah. Nothing counts as cheating against the most senior yeah. R in the office, right? <laughs> Um, and then this is where so he takes th- like four, four goes at him, I think. Yeah. I think with the second one, um, he, I'm trying to think of the second one. Yeah. Second one, he, he just tries to invisibly cast stupefy at him. And then the third one, while like right after the stupefy, he tries to hit him with a transfigured taser and Moody like ducks and like hard and fast and Mm -hmm. there's also this line too where moody's moody's body seems to almost flicker as he spun on his wooden foot like lightning um just for me i picture like an anime fight Mm -hmm. uh like it it seems to fit exactly with every anime sort of fight where they you know basically teleport around i think that was a deliberate homage because i think i saw the first episode of naruto which moody uh 
uh, what do you call it? Basically hand waves here in a second. Um, oh, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I tried it and I was like, okay, there's like 300 of these. I'm not sold on the first one. I'm not going to get invested, but uh, I'll, I'll point that out when it comes up. Um, yeah, so for the, for the fourth try, he, he uses up the last, all, all of his last hours and uh, his his trick, <laughs> how he gets them. Do you want to summarize it or do you want me to? Yeah, so he uh, he decided to, to use the, the last of his time by just going out and talking to uh, Flitwick. And I guess what he's just sort of like basically explains his predicament. He's like, oh, I need to be able to beat Moody in a duel. And uh, so Flitwick gives him – was it just taught him the spell? Or I guess it was. It was just taught him a new spell. It wasn't like a, a thing he gave him. Well, he, um, he did He did both. He taught him the, the swerving stunner, but then he, he gave him this device because Harry's explaining after he knocks him out that – well, I needed some way to blind your eye, but I don't want to be blind myself. So oh, as, as Asimov pointed out in Second Foundation, the weapon to use is a brilliant light that I can't see. And I had no idea what that would mean, but I didn't tell Professor Flitwick that. And I figured he'd just do it anyway. And he did. <laughs> he gave me this little thing that I press and it, and it blinded your magic eyeball. So I was able to hit you. Um, but that it was also, it wasn't just like that wouldn't have been enough that he learns the not stupefy, but stuporify spell which is like a the guided missile version of a of a bolt i think yeah he explained like changes that, directions at the last second yeah flitwick developed it as part of one of his like uh champion dueling tactics mm-hmm. and it, i think it adjusts velocity or changes direction once if it senses that the target is getting further away so um it was just like a, a silly little hack to get him with a stunning hex that you know he would think he dodged and then it nails him uh then the the whole kind of explanation of, um, you know, McGonagall's flabbergasted. It's like, you just stunned Mad-Eye Moody, like the most famous dark wizard hunter in the history of the Auror office. That should be impossible. And Moody says- She's like, well, yeah, he let me win. That's what Harry says. Well, he says that he kept giving me, like we weren't, he wasn't fighting seriously. Yeah. Like Moody saw all of his copies and didn't drop them all at once. You know, he waited for them all to attack. And and that's what I like later is knowing that Moody saw them all immediately and had just sort of like filed that all away. Right. So when he shows up and he's pointing at almost pointing his wand at Harry, he, like that's because he's like, why is this guy standing around in the room four times giving me, yeah. the, giving me the stink eye? <laughs> and some, so, and then I guess what, somehow he would have like, I guess he would have immediately figured out that like, whichever the extra three or four or whatever, like the three or four of them would have been like, you know, battle stance mode. And, you know, Harry number one would have been the only one not in battle stance mode. And so he would have like instantly decided that, okay, wait, I need to fake everybody out. And, but that's the, the official one. I guess he also could have seen that like the other ones were hiding um, and invisible. I was like, okay, so that's the one I have to acknowledge and pretend I don't see these other guys, but still act a little paranoid. Like I'm about to shoot everybody, even though it's totally warranted. I have to pretend it's not warranted. Yeah. I get the impression that's just always how he enters a room. I know, right. but he's giving yeah, Harry so like extra that, attention because like, he saw time to turn invisible yeah, copies of him exactly. in the room. And, and like the sort of like superhero levels of like, and he like thought all of that in a femtosecond, and you know figured out what the right thing to do was. You don't get to be that badass by exactly. uh, you know being lazy with your paranoia. <laughs> I think that in the episode or in the chapter that episode, because this this whole book feels like a great TV series. Um, you know, back in the last season when we were with uh, Moody and we were in his head for a minute, um, when they were poisoning the graveyard, he had said that he once had a Ravenclaw crunch some numbers on how likely someone was to die if they're hunting dark wizards their whole life before they hit like age 100 or something. Uh, yeah. And that the average dark wizard hunter would die seven and a half times on average. 
And so he's like, yeah, this is how you get properly paranoid. Um, (laughs) I think it's a great example of like the whole suspension of disbelief thing. Like Moody is like ridiculously unrealistic, but you're like, yes, you're like signed up. Totally awesome. Yes. He took out four simultaneous Harry's. He knew what to do. He's faster than anything because it's just awesome. Like I'm fine with that. Yeah. I like that. I mean, it's, I I think, you know, (laughs) using the word realistic in a, in a situation where this kid turned, you know, is, is in this room four times at once because he's got Mm -hmm. a a time machine and he's invisible. Um, Yeah. you, You throw all that out and it's just a great, great ride. Yeah. And so like, it's once you like get the secret sauce on that, like the ridiculousness of it, like starts to be like a feature, not a bug. Like it makes it like more enjoyable how like over the top, you know, silly it is what he was able to do. Like, yes, that was awesome. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes it so enjoyable is like you said, it's you're, you're just allowed to go totally nuts with it and Uh, have a great time because, Hey, look, there's fucking magic. Like everyone go nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So then Moody asks him like, all right, well, you, you get to, um, you, you, you finally had something to say about, you know, when Albus and I go after Lockhart and I do like how Harry is, um, humble, modest. I don't know. He says, I won't tell you how to run a war. I don't have any experience at that. All I know is that there are consequences. Please be advised that my own assessment is that Lockhart is probably innocent. So if you can avoid hurting him without too much risk and he shrugs, I don't know the cost, just please. If you can, be careful if you think, er, be careful not to hurt him if he's innocent. And when you're looking through his mind, don't, you know, don't turn him in for something that's not related to all this Dark Lord business. And this is where Moody points out, like, look, nobody gains power that fast without being up to something. And he's like, then leave it up to the ordinary horrors if and when they find evidence to the, the ordinary way. Call it a quirk of a muggle upbringing. But if it's not about the war, I don't want us to be the evil police who break into people's houses in the middle of the night, rummage through their minds, and send them off to Azkaban. There, there is no wizard ACLU. Right. <laughs> we saw that with, with fucking like, Hermione, like that, right? Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting. Like, I mean, I liked it. Like, that that whole idea and like additional requests from Harry didn't need to be in this at all. And it wouldn't have occurred to us that there was kind of anything missing. But I kind of like that it just got tossed in because it just sort of seemed like a natural... Like this is, this is starting to get like a weird, like, you know, Patriot Act Guantanamo vibe to it. Um, so I kind of like, like just have that tossed in as well. And just sort of how true it is. Like you, you're going to find dirt on, on him because he's a human. Um, right. There's just, just too like, many laws. Alone. Like that's not what you're here for. Exactly. So, yeah. But I had also like, it was like, oh no, we're still going to totally go over there and kind of fuck with him. <laughs> but like that wasn't ever changing, but okay, we'll like. Trying to totally fuck up with him. Yeah, well, we, we won't throw him off to Azkaban unless we find war-related stuff. Um, <laughs> I do like, uh, you know, that reminds me because you know, like you said, w- until Harry points it out, like I, I was just fully on board. Like, oh yeah, you think it's him? Get in there, kick the door in, and find out. Like, it wasn't until Harry points out, like, hey, does that make us the baddies? Like, <laughs> um, uh, so he, he, I, I like that he's got this, you know, kind of anchor of trying to make things, yeah. you know, make everyone play nice and. This actually, I was thinking about this in the last week, week and a half or so, because we haven't done a chapter episode in a while. Um, like part of the, I think we talked about this a bit during the retro. That's what I was thinking about it from where like when Harry, uh, to put it not delicately, like bullheadedly just goes ahead and does whatever he wants and, you know, damn the consequences. I'm going to do what I think is right. Like I, I, I've been thinking about why that is or isn't a problem. And like, 
part of it is like he's a hero. That's what heroes do. You know, you you go in there, you kick the door, and you you stop the bad guy, and it doesn't matter. But like the problem with thinking that way is that it's only safe and like coherent if you're actually 100% right and good. And I think that's what you were what you were getting at, but it didn't really quite land for me until I was, I was mulling it over. Like, if if there's any misstep in Harry's like goodness calculations on like what he should be doing, then the disa- then the results could be disastrous. Yeah, and he's hedged his bet not at all. Well, because like, he's got, going all in on the assumption that you're right means then when you're not right, you really really fuck it up, or you do really really bad things because you're not entertaining the idea that uh, that you might be wrong. And I was, like, and my other my other thought with that was that even in the situation, even if you're in that situation and you're totally right. And so you're going in all guns blazing, um, knowing you're totally right. Like at least what plays for me is okay. But if this is just your, you know, philosophy of fuck with people, um, what about the next time or the next time or the next time, one of those times you're going to be wrong and then, you know, and then do horrible, horrible things. And when I put myself in the mindset from the extremely elementary way that I can as not being someone who does this whatsoever. But like, if you're trying, you know, like the author is an artificial intelligence researcher. Like how do you, how do you build a mind from scratch that doesn't, you know, go wrong? Um, You don't put that kind of thought process into it. You want it to be careful. You want it to, to be extra cautious. And like, that's why I was thinking, uh, I think I was talking with Inyash about this. I think it was during one of our game nights that wasn't on the air, but we were, like throwing around the idea, like if Harry, you know, became all powerful, like he wants, uh, like right now that's dangerous, right? It, it, because, mm-hmm. because unless we want to say he is perfectly calibrated, then like giving him all the power in the world uh, is a bad idea. That, that didn't come out quite as articulately as I'd, as I'd hoped. Cause I, I, like I said, it had been on the back burner of my brain for like a yeah. week. So I wish I had. No, I think, I think we've been kicking your, Yeah. No, I think we've been saying, you know, pretty similar to that. What was it? I think, I don't know if I said it out loud or if it was just in my notes, like you don't know if you're Che Guevara or Fidel Castro, like everybody thinks they're Che. <laughs> I think you did say that, but yeah, it's. And then, um, and then like 40 years later, you're like imprisoning journalists. And, and, you know, you, you can be pretty confident that you're the good guy. I think my thing is just like, it, it doesn't even fit with what I think the, and I, I don't usually think of the book in these terms, but like this, it doesn't even fit with what I think the author would think. Um, you're, you don't, you're, you, I think, I think Yudkowsky, uh, I don't want to put myself in issues too much. I'll put it this way. If I could press a button and give myself all the godlike power in the world, well, I'd probably do it just to make sure no one else pressed the button. Um, but I wouldn't run around rampaging and changing the planet willy nilly really quick without consulting, you know, my council of trusted experts. Um, I don't think I have it all right. I, I'm pretty sure I have it as close to right as I can because I try to live my life that way. But like that's the thing. So I, I guess that's that's what I was just trying to articulate was that like unless you're going to say no, Harry is perfectly calibrated, then like endorsing his I'm going to do everything that I think is right and just you know damn the consequences uh, is a bad idea. Yeah, so. yeah. And I think like for me, and I think like something that got lost a lot was it's not like the things that Harry did. It wasn't it wasn't that Harry was willing to go to the wall and do something super drastic. It was that he was going to do it without consulting anybody. Um, because okay, sometimes and so it's not like a oh you might be wrong, therefore do nothing. Um, it's oh you might be wrong, so you know get a lot of other people's opinions first, and that sometimes you do, you know, you know sometimes you do have a revolution. Um, 
but sort of like do that with some humility and and some awareness of you know just like and hedge your bets you might be wrong you might be killing the good guys and not know it yeah and and then at the very least you need a hermione in your team you know the one who is capital g good who can can give that perspective um, and it was like, we had this a few, you know, murdering an abortion provider is a completely like coherent act of somebody who thinks they're doing the right thing. Absolutely. And that's a great example. Like now, granted, we're all on board with, uh, thinking that person, you know, the, the yeah. abortion murderers are wrong. I, I picked the example we'd all agree with, but. but like the thing is they think they're right. And we think Harry's right because, you know, most of us think he's right with most things most of the time, but that's not really the point. The point is like, no, you need sanity checks. Um, I, again, unless you think you're, you're, uh, unless, unless you think Harry is perfectly sane and 100% right, I think, you know, needing sanity checks is a necessary qualifier there. And I think, and that's like the flip side to that is that like following that you end up with like some really shitty gray area compromises that nobody enjoys. Um, but I, and I think that's a lot of what we, uh, we saw Dumbledore talking about, like, you know, the people he's let die, the shitty decisions he's had to make, the bullying he thinks needs to allow to continue, which he probably doesn't. So yet again, he's wrong, but, um, but that's a thing he, that is a, an ugly compromise he thinks he needs to make because he can't go out and, you know, just do the right thing no matter what. Um, so like, that's the, that's the uncomfortable shit. He's like, it's not the simple answer. It's like, Oh, and, and especially like in that, whatever uncertainty you have, you don't even know if you're, if you're, you don't even know if your caution is warranted. Yeah, totally. And I think I just found a good place to shoehorn that thought in because I wanted to talk about this episode and forgot to bring it up earlier. But I was bringing it up on the fact that he seems to be like the one ang- – like even McGonagall didn't speak up and say, well, hold on. Should we not kick in this guy's you know door and and uh, yeah. shatter his mind looking for, for Voldemort? <laughs> um, so Harry was the – like he, Harry was the Hermione in the situation, right? Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And Dumbledore was like totally on board. He was like, he didn't say much, but, or like literally he said nothing. And he's like, okay, yeah, three o'clock. Or I don't know that he said it, but he definitely didn't object to like, oh, yeah, well. Yeah, that seemed to be the plan. And I think we get the impression we'll that, that Dumbledore takes the war very, very seriously. Yeah. So, like, you know, there, while he might not be full mad eye levels of uh, going guns blazing, he's definitely sympathetic to that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I would have thought maybe we just it didn't play out so we wouldn't have seen it i would have at least thought that like even if dumbledore was on board he would have been a lot more <laughs> conflicted about it whereas mad is just like nah fuck it let's you know break his kneecaps well and dumbledore let's thinks that says. this might be the guy you know who tortured his brother to death so like um, I, don't, I don't get i don't get a strong vengeance yeah. vibe from dumbledore but yeah. like it's easy to see why he might not be like uh super merciful yeah he definitely never says like oh no 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 harry's got a point like we don't ever hear him say that yeah good point he doesn't yeah all right so then speaking of dumbledore we get a line break to hypothesis dumbledore and so harry is sitting having tea with professor quirrell and there's this nice little beat where quirrell's hand twitches as he's raising his teacup yeah it was sort of like said a little bit and then like not brought back up yeah we have been like there's been more because it didn't register for me until um Amelia Bones said it, uh, that like, oh, it's getting worse. And so I think this one is, I'm like, oh, okay, it is getting worse. This might be the first indication that we have that it actually is getting worse. Yeah. Like, well, no, cause, cause Amelia Bones like called it out. Like, oh yeah. Said it explicitly like, oh, and it has been steadily getting worse. 
that's, that's right. That, that he's been having just, more yeah. zombie time, yeah. but we don't really see him enough to notice that. But yeah, she points that out too. You're right. Yeah. And then I started wondering like, Oh, is it just like quarrels, um, presence around Harry that like, so it's like just the, like it's, you know, extended radioactive exposure to Harry. But I, so that, like I, that, I entertain that as an idea, but then I'm like, well, then why wouldn't it be affecting Harry in the same way? So I don't know, maybe just a coral spring is winding down and he needs to re Horcrux. <laughs> I did. I, I'm glad that you mentioned the thing with Harry. Cause that was my thought too. Is like, well, if it was proximity, Harry would be getting twitchy too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why uh, doesn't it affect them both? Yeah. I like that. Um, uh, still, still a question mark. Anyway, yeah, but I like so, the scene cause I like the scene cause it was also seen like, this is another example of like Harry's like conspicuous blindness that cause Quirrell, like from our point of view, Quirrell's just clearly just trying to muddy the waters and he's just like tossing out any fucking theory in the world. That's not him. Um, like maybe Dumbledore did it. Maybe, uh, wasn't it like maybe, you know, Hermione or, oh yeah, maybe, maybe Dumbledore did it. And there was another one in there. Maybe Lucius well. did it. Yeah, that's the big one, which is like, I like that kind of on two levels because, well, just A, I'm like, okay, now you're really reaching. But he, you know, says things in like super confidence um, to try to make them sound not as ridiculous. But that also, it was kind of another sign of just like how, you know, sociopath Quirrell is that the idea that Lucius would just, um, you know, automatically and very quickly decide to have his own kid killed because because he became a muggle lover. And I think that was like the entirety of what Quirrell was saying was the justification and that the political ramifications of knowing that you're that the scion of Malfoy has become a muggle lover, but that like the, the level to which Quirrell just finds that entirely plausible and doesn't feel like he needs to sell it very hard. Um, it's just kind of a sign of just how kind of cold blooded Quirrell is and unaware of how off he is in that. Yeah, it's awesome. I think he says that you're being wantonly naive, Mr. Potter. The history books are full of family disputes turned murderous for inconveniences and threats, far less those than which Mr. Malfoy posed to his father. I suppose you'll tell me that the, that Lord Malfoy of the Death Eaters is far too gentle to wish his son ha- such harm. And then Harry's like, well, yes, frankly, well, love is yes. real, Professor. And and I like it. Like we got like it reminded me like that one. That was a really cool scene. I thought of uh, that like one instance of Lucius, you know, being human. Like we get to see like the last shred of Lucius being a de- decent person is his like sincere love for Draco and and his willingness to just completely throw away the rest of his soul. What do you say? Like you know, give give myself over to vengeance um, if anything happened to Draco. So it's like we've explicitly seen how off quarrel is it besides just thinking like okay you just misjudge how humans work like we know specifically like this is not true about lucius yeah i like that and i don't find uh quarrel's hypothesis that lucius is behind it very compelling either yeah um well yeah they 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 all come across and kind of how this worked for me what was that he had a third one in the middle which was like even was it just that hermione through i can't remember there was some third but they I guess it didn't stick because they all just seem sort of like, oh, you're just throwing anything at the wall just to, you know, see what'll stick. So like his, you know, ideas around his and his explanation around maybe it's Dumbledore was even just kind of vague and didn't make any sense. Just like, oh, well, he's just up to stuff and he's got lots of plans going on and he's crazy. Um, I, I think there was, and, uh, like, there was a bit the, of a steel man to it, though. Part of it was that um, he had suspected Dumbledore might do something as soon as Harry told him that Lucius would throw away his game for vengeance if anything happened to Draco. And then... Uh, so then he says, um, 
or rather Harry says, I've seen a little now of Dumbledore, and unless everything I've seen is a lie, I find it difficult to believe he had plot to send any Hogwarts student to Azkaban ever. Yeah. And then, then the defense <clears throat> professor says, ah, but perhaps that is another signature, Mr. Potter. You have not yet comprehended the perspective of a man like Dumbledore. If he must, in some sufficiently noble cause, sacrifice a student, why, who would he choose but she who declared herself a heroine? And it all sounds so like, and, and Harry does a little bit like sort of, you know, articulate in his own mind that <clears throat> like the levels to which Quirrell has consciously planted the seeds to like be able to pull us off. So Harry is seeing it as kind of a, as a, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Just something, you know, artificial that um, Quirrell's been planning. But also, and again, like stuck out to me is like, that yes, that all sounds good on paper, but like in its totality just seems sort of like really arbitrary and desperate and just trying to like, you know, stir up any idea that isn't, oh, and it's me. Yeah. I, I will, uh, I'll read one more little passage here where right after he says the thing about, uh, you know, Dumbledore might actually sacrifice a, a heroic student. Um, Harry thinks it might have just been hindsight bias, but that did seem to concentrate some of the hypothesis probability mass on framing Hermione in particular. Similarly, Professor Quirrell had predicted had predicted in advance that Dumbledore might target Draco, but then there's like in italics, like a, a vocalization thought in his head. But if it is you behind all of this, Professor, you might have shaped your plans to frame the headmaster and taken care to cast suspicion on him in advance. And so, like, he... Oh, and he does, he says that out loud to him. No, no, he's, he I, says that out loud in his head. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then he thinks to himself, the concept of evidence had a different meaning or had something of a different meaning when you're dealing with someone who had declared themselves to play the game at one level higher than you, which is like what you and I were saying earlier. Yeah. Like, you know, if, if Quirrell is the, the mastermind and he's got this, you know, long-term plan, then yeah, it, it's what, like March or something right now? I, I don't know what month it is. It's months after Christmas. And right after Christmas, Quirrell was like, oh, obviously Dumbledore's going to try and kill Draco because he just told him that, you know, Lucius throw away his game if anything happens to him. And so like... If, if this was Quirrell behind this, he had planned well in advance to plant the seeds of, well, let's make Harry think Dumbledore did it, you know, way ahead of the game. Yeah. And even like the, like, it doesn't get drawn much past just the idea of, oh, Dumbledore would do this to try to like, um, you know, trigger, you know, entrap uh, Lucius into, into doing something uh, that it's sort of like not like that, that just sort of like sounds sinister enough on its own that there's no need to you know continue exploring the why of it It was like well why does he want to do that other than just like oh he's one of the bad guys in my political enemy um but yeah it's it's sort of like vague and and not you don't see like a clear end game to why he might do it yeah it's i mean i guess taking off the uh i think lucius is moving voldemort's chess pieces as dumbledore puts it so i mean it would be taking away the enemy's chess master but like I don't know. I get the I get the vibe that over the last decade the game hasn't had that high of stakes. Um, yeah. So like if it, if I my mental model of Dumbledore is like Harry's, where it's like I don't see Dumbledore killing a kid over uh, the the stakes that are currently on the table. That's um, what he wants you to think. That's exactly what he that's wants right. you to think. <laughs> oh, that reminds me, because uh, you, you had said, isn't there a third person? He does mention a third uh, suspect. Um, he mentions Professor Trelawney's prophecy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And not the one that Harry is thinking of, the one that we heard on the first Sunday uh, of his first week at school. Yeah, when Dumbledore flew across the dining hall to take her away before she could say more. 
Yeah, so it could be that he he who is coming was the one who's behind all of this. Yes. Oh yeah, and I guess he who is coming isn't Dumbledore because Dumbledore is already there. And that's what and then what Harry said in that moment he's like I'm not he who is coming because I am he who is here. Right. <clears throat> so yeah. it seems to imply somebody who in Harry's interpretation wasn't already there. Yeah. That's a, he who is coming doesn't really apply to anybody. Although I guess it applies to a uh an offstage Voldemort. It certainly might, it might not indicate an offstage player. He who is coming. Yeah, I wonder what to make of that. Of course, prophecies are tricky mm, and, you know, uh, exactly. rife with misinterpretations. So. Yeah, really, they just mean, you know, he who is in the middle of an orgasm. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't want to finish the line then. The one who will tear apart the very... <laughs> oh! Oh! All right. Well, I'm glad we got to take this nice. to an R-rated, R-rated joke. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's been a long, long time since I sexed up Harry and Quirrell. Uh, I, I didn't even take it there. Cause neither, it's got to be one. Neither of them were coming at that moment, right? It's, Probably. That's what they want you to think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Harry, uh, Quirrell's super cold-blooded. You can't tell when he's coming. He just, like, he just clears his throat. <laughs> <laughs> Almost, almost. There we are. I love that. That was from a uh, Family Guy. Family Guy, yeah. There we are. No, ah, perfect. Jolly good. Jolly good, dear. Jolly good. High five. <laughs> um, all right, where were we? All right. Yeah, we gotta we gotta bring this back to the book before we completely lose track. Um, they're basically speculating on who on who he is coming might be. Um, so they get kind of nowhere with that. Yeah, because there's really nowhere to go. Um, like Quirrell says, you know, it could be you or me or Dumbledore or as a distant fourth, Severus Snape, because we're like, we're the only ones who are like, quote, important enough for time to give a shit about. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I thought that was like like an interesting little like way to like set up the rules that uh, like prophecies are always heard by the people that they are about. Or that the ones so who then, need to hear them to alleviate like yeah. the time pressure or something. Yeah. And so that, like, then they're able to be like, okay, then that's, it has to be one of these, you know, four people because that's all it would apply to. Or at least the ones who would need to hear it. Cause, like, the, yeah. the prophecy for, uh, the original one with, uh, those oh, that yeah, thrice defied him, that prophecy yeah. was meant to be heard by Snape because whatever time magic fuckery is involved says that Snape will take it to Voldemort and that's what needs yeah. to happen. But I guess, yeah, no, but it doesn't mean that because, yeah, if, if, my rule had been true, then Voldemort would have had to have heard it, you know, from Trelawney's mouth, which was not the case. I guess it just means that those who are meant to hear it are the ones who do in fact hear it. It's kind of circular. Uh, oh, well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's circular, uh, but <laughs> well, like, like we, prophecy, yeah, which is, that is the, that is the time travel rules of the story um, where like it, time remains self-consistent or yeah, the universe remains consistent even with time travel in it. So Prophecies are basically time travel. It's just passing information rather than stuff. That was, uh, what was his name? Really? Uh, Ineos will know what I'm talking about. Um, he wrote that, uh, he wrote the short story that the science fiction movie about the aliens that live backwards. I can't remember what he's called. Uh, Ed, he's, um, he's Asian, Arrival? I can't remember. Arrival, yeah. Who's uh, uh, Chen? Is that his last name? That might have been. I only saw uh, the- uh, Chang. Chang. I can't remember. David Chang. So, anyway, yeah, he had a like a cool guy. Uh, actually, me and Ineos both met him at a um, 
uh, Khan, but uh, like his idea was like uh, prophecies were like the first science fiction stories because they're a, they're a form of time travel. But that was a cool idea. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah I can take that. Ted Chang. Is it really? If, if any of our listeners have not read any Ted Chang, super cool stuff. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I can dig it. I'll have to check out. Is the book Arrival? I, I'm assuming it's, uh, it's it's always better. Everything is better than the movie. Uh, and I did like yeah, the I movie. I follow my rule about it. yeah, yeah. It was a, yeah, it was a good movie. The as I remember, that's that was a short story turned into a movie, and I don't think they were super exactly the same. Um, but yeah, and I think he's mostly written short stories. Um, he's got another one about the the alchemists mirrors, alchemist, not alchemist gate. Um, yeah, he's got sort of like a sci fi fantasy thing, but set in like the time of genies. Okay, yeah, totally something Ted Chang like that is ringing a bell for me, but I yeah. will have to go through my stuff I've read and figure out yeah, yeah. if I came across that. But yeah, all right, Alchemist, Ted Chang, Alchemist that's, that's the bonus reading Alchemist. for this week. There you go, good stuff, good stuff. Uh, the hell were we talking about? Oh yeah, prophecies. They are, yeah, exactly, prophecies led to that. But the um, the last suspect that Harry wants to talk about with the defense professor, he says, I can think of one other suspect, someone who didn't put on your list at all. Would you analyze him to me, professor? And then I did like his, like his response to that was like, I'm not going to try to defend myself because that just sounds guilty and you shouldn't believe anything I would say anyway. Right. Either I'll do like too good. Solid, either I'll do the too good. The non-defense defense. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah, that was like, that's like his only honest play out of that is just the non-defense defense, which I like. Like that's sort of Quarrel's MO is to like acknowledge, you know, he doesn't try to dodge uh, the suspicion. He just like acknowledges it outright he's like oh and you should be suspecting me of this this and this yeah um, so i like that. that again yeah i mean he says like either i'll do, either i'll do too good a job pr- prosecuting myself and convince you that i'm guilty or you'll decide that my, my prosecution is too half-hearted and you'll decide that i'm guilty <laughs> he's, he's i will remark on this only i will remark only this in my defense that i would have needed a very good reason indeed to jeopardize your fragile alliance with the heir of house malfoy because yes, like because yes, Harry or because Quirrell's <laughs> uh, uh, expressed goal is for Harry to take over the country and doing that without the you know alliance of the Malfoys is uh, probably harder than doing it with the alliance of the Malfoys. Yeah, I want to now. I got that spinning in the back of my head. Like what? Because Quirrell has, without a lot of detail, but has told Harry like, "Oh, I'm gonna you know someday you're gonna be Fuhrer of England." But now I'm wondering, like, to what extent is that true or to what extent is it – is it just not even true at all or is it – it's clearly – like, at least for me, like, I don't think it uh, – how did I put it? That, like, ruling over all of England, England just seems like way too low rent a goal for a quarrel um, and that it would either – either it's just not true and it's some other kind of, like, diversion or it's in, like, some in service of his other goals. But, yeah, not really sure what – like, what what is the real story with that? Quirrell's playing eighth dimensional chess with us. And we have no fucking clue. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I was like, sort of, okay. So if like Quirrell's like afraid of death and running away from death at like being, you know, ruling over all of England is just, you know, if he's thinking like, Oh, I'm still going to be here in a billion years, then ruling over England is like not even chump change. So it's got, it's got to be in service of more. Yeah, I suppose. So, I mean, you know, if I was planning, if I, if I was, if I knew I was going to live to be a billion years old, I think I'd still have short-term goals because, like, otherwise, what are you going to do? Yeah. Just sit around. Well, but it would have, yeah, but it would have to be like, um, yeah, the short-term goals would have to be like in pursuit of the long-term goal, especially since he hasn't achieved that long-term goal. Like, I could see, like, okay, now that I am immortal, it might be kind of fun to be emperor of the world, 
and let go after that. But if he has not yet made himself immortal, then uh, then any machinations he's up to are going to he's still going to be focused on the big picture. I think the big picture and his I think the big picture is his living forever, maybe because yeah. um, he he talked about like during his Christmas speech about how there might be a you know an ex, an outside threat to the wizarding world. Yeah. So that that could be. Yeah, but even that, like I don't I don't picture Quirrell as like giving a fuck about an outside threat to the wizarding world as long as it's not a threat to him. Well, that that's I think his concern. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't I don't know. I suppose you could teleport away if you had enough notice. But if a nuke went off forty feet from you, you know, like you're kind of fucked. And muggles have nukes and wizards don't. That was kind of new to him though. Like that idea was like had not occurred to him until Harry brought it up. And if he's been up to this fuckery the whole time, then. I guess what I'm wondering is like, oh, does like becoming emperor of, of England help him, you know, become immortal or is it just like another, you know, theater thing in order, you know, is it just another distraction while he's, you know, up to something else? Or is it just like the bullshit line he's feeding Harry? He's like, okay, really? I'm just trying to make you emperor of England, but he's just trying to like manipulate Harry into getting into position for whatever it is. He's trying to do like it's a it's a good plausible explanation for all kinds of other weird fuckery um, that he can like you know it's a plausible it, it can be a plausible ally for a whole uh, alibi for a, a whole lot of things and so then it's a good lie I don't know like it could be anything like there's a whole I don't know what's going on with that it sort of like stands out as just having all kinds of question marks around it we can speculate endlessly yes this, <laughs> we, should, we should have a podcast where I do that yeah man we'll have to call it like uh, um, I don't know I mean. I, I think I, I think we I, want more of this uh, this speculation, yes. right? I don't know what and we'd call that please, show, though. Please, sir, could I have additional speculation? Aha. Speaking of additional speculation, we move back to the uh, command center where they're going to hypothesize on the defense professor. And this part was super weird. Um, I th- maybe it's because this chapter has been like several of these instances of like everybody just sort of like carving out exceptions for Coral Cuz reasons. Um, because so they're, they've decided um, like, okay, now let's talk about whether or not it's Coral. And Dumbledore is like, oh, sorry, have to leave. I promised Coral I wouldn't ever try to figure out anything about him. <laughs> not that there's anything strange about that. Um, Would you say that that challenges your suspension of disbelief? It, it does. Well, in a cool, like in a in a very clearly like like oh this this we're going somewhere with this. I think that's and what I kind of like about it. It seems like the volume on this is being turned up, and it's becoming then it's it's stick it's becoming more obvious to us, and then more weird that it's not obvious to anybody else. And so it, it's it ends like sticking out like it's sort of like building tension. Like okay, this can't continue. Um, somebody's going to be like the fuck people. Um, and so you like wondering, okay, when is that going to, like, when's that shoe going to drop? So, I mean, it's kind of cool. I love it. I got a couple quick thoughts on it. One, Do- Moody is the first one to drop that shoe and said, why'd you make a full promise like that then? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Dumbledore kind of just like, well, sorry, you know, Minerva said I'd, we required a competent defense professor this year, even if I had to haul Grindelwald out of Nurmengard and prevail on old affections to persuade him to take the position. Yeah. Um, and then but even the, yeah, like, cause like Moody is like, like, oh, you should just fire the asshole. Um, so, I mean, Moody is like being Moody levels of paranoid about it, but like, it should have been like Moody be like, it's clearly this motherfucker. Like, let's go break his kneecaps. <laughs> um, and like, but even like at Moody's level, even Moody levels of paranoia don't like home and in on like this super suspicious behavior going on. 
Yeah, I want to get to that in a second. There's there's a thing here that I had to, I I connected like I don't know a year or two after I read this, and then reread it after learning about what it's called. So after Dumbledore leaves, Harry is sitting there, and like there's this like truncated conical object, like a cone with its top spin, uh, snipped off, s- slowly spinning around with a pulsating central light, making a roop 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 sound that sounded oddly distant, and. Like, I, it, like it, this is a almost half of a paragraph describing this thing. I'm like, what the fuck is this thing? I'm like, it's a lampshade. And <laughs> lampshade, lampshade hanging is the trope where, like, it's the writer's trick of dealing with an element of the story that threatens the audience's willing suspension of disbelief. And uh, by just by just calling attention to it and moving on. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So See, like, it sticks out. Yeah. He, yeah, he lampshades like, it and then, then has the lampshade in the room making noise. And it's like, so, okay, yep. Just, just move on. Uh, it's, it's like as close as he can get to just literally telling the audience, "Yes, this is, this is, uh, your, your suspension of dis- disbelief. Just, just keep running with it." Yeah, um, I do like it's, it's. I like these points. I'm like that should have like stuck out as being like like a huge flaw. Like seeing something like that and then kind of like having confidence and like, uh, I guess kind of what Matt was saying. Like this is here on purpose. Like this is going somewhere. And then you're like. It, it, instead of it sticking out as this like you know thorn in your side around like an inconsistency it's more like oh it's a cool thing that's building tension totally and what i love is that the author was self-aware but enough to put in a reference to tv tropes by so having read it back like a conical with a oh i guess when he said conical i was then picturing conical sections and then i pictured it as being like sliced at a slant but if it's not sliced to the slant, then it looks like a lampshade. Yeah. I picture like, yeah, like just a traffic cone with the top snipped off. And then like, I'm like, oh yeah, lampshade. And then lampshade. with the, with the central pulsating light, I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah. That's where he's going with this. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if I made the connection initially or not, or if someone pointed it out to me, but when it was pointed out, then it just became hilarious to me that uh, like he, he. No, I wasn't like reading it. It just stands out as like just another description of an odd thing in Dumbledore's office. So it did a good job of hiding itself that way. Yeah. And, and that, that's, cool. that's what I like about, you know, where Matt says, uh, assume the author is a genius. Like this, this is a, that is a genius move. That is, it's, it's like a meta level of a writing tactic by being self-aware about the writing tactic itself in the text. Yeah. That now it like totally makes me wonder, like, cause it's been getting, like, like I said, like the volume increasing, like what the fuck is up with Dumbledore? Cause clearly there's like shit going on that he's just not telling anybody, like not telling anybody, anybody. Yeah, he well, something's going on there, probably. Yes. Um. So yeah, right. we've got the uh, Harry's now getting the text dump on uh, this this guy named David Monroe. Apparently, is the mysterious person. Uh, now we have a name. Which I got to call out this name. So what, David Brian? Oh yeah, it's like Deacon, right? Yes. So you share a name with the two most powerful wizards in this story yes and does my uh lord dude i'm trying to like can we get a voldemort out of my name no i'm missing a missing an m yeah we, we, we got a squint to find that but yeah, yeah. Uh, i, I thought that was awesome gotta, there's probably some additional name we could we can make up that where we can get a voldemort out of my out of my name when i need like an l and an m anyway we can't we can't uh, we can't ignore that coincidence because nothing's ever coincidence. so Melt, melt, David Brian Deacon. I am Lord Vaughn. All right. So the David. the whole like my uncle's name was Albus. You're kidding. Kidding. 
Okay, yeah. <laughs> like that's that's not a real name. It's <laughs> no, not a real well, Wolfric. Wolfric Deacon. It's a, yeah. No. Yeah. All right. So here we go. Where Harry's getting the text dump on all this stuff, and he's thinking like, okay, well, hold on. This this does sort of all make sense. Like who Professor Kroll seems like he he is, and um, he he's kind of like torn uh, between like his loyalty to his friend Professor Quirrell. And the other half of his Hufflepuff side, who never trusted this, you know, obviously bad character to to, to begin with. Um, I, um, and it seems like what uh, Moody lays out. Um, well, so so if we, if my theory is uh, there there was a David Monroe, uh, but it's not Quirrell. Um, but everything they think David Monroe is was Quirrell pretending to be David Monroe. Uh, there's, and Voldemort's the same. It's like, so none of them are real. They're all like, there is no, there is no Quirrell. There is no Voldemort. There is no David Monroe. They're all some fakey fake thing. Um, but there was a real David Monroe at some point um, that like, that's pretty close to um, what Moody lays out, except like he, it's like he brings it all the way up to the door, but then like stop short and be, cause he leaves it at, Okay, so Quirrell is actually David Monroe, and there's fuckery going on there, and it's all it's all an act. Um, the real David Monroe is dead, and there's still this other Voldemort. Um, it's like he almost it's like he's almost there, and then still like uh, like leaves it just shy of. And because then, then it stays kind of a little vague around like then what would the relationship between Voldemort and Quirrell be? Quirrell slash David Monroe. Does he does he characterize it as an, he doesn't characterize it as an act? Does he? Um, Harry thinks about it as an act. Um, like, but does Moody, does Moody bring up the idea? I think I got so lost in like confirming or denying my own theory on it that I forget what the actual, <laughs> what it actually was. Does Moody bring up the idea that, um, that David Monroe, is it really Voldemort's enemy? Um, yeah. Moody mentions that he watched David Monroe rip through death eaters, like the, you know, uh, like someone snapping twigs. Um, <laughs> So, but he doesn't think that he's Voldemort. No, he. Th- I think that it's the established, like it's the accepted mentality of everyone in the room that David Monroe was like the most feared of Voldemort's mm-hmm. enemies. Um, like, but that he was actually Quirrell pretending to be David Monroe. Like that's Moody's theory. Um, but now I can't remember where did he, did, but he didn't frame. Quirrell slash David Monroe as being Voldemort. In, no, uh, be, not, not only being Voldemort, but not, he didn't even think that he was on Voldemort's side or did he? No, I don't think so. I think that, no, that uh, he was Voldemort's enemy, but that it's Quirrell slash David Monroe. Yeah. So, Voldemort's so enemy. He, That's I think he stops it at this Monroe character doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because he disappears for 25 years, then comes back yeah. and at age 45 is like as powerful as Dumbledore. So he's like that, that part's super suspicious. Um, and then uh, Snape chimes in because, you know, I kind of forgot he was in the room because he hasn't said anything in like an <laughs> hour. Um, he says, perhaps that is true. But what of it, Mad-Eye? Whatever his identity, Monroe was surely the Dark Lord's enemy. I have heard Death Eaters curse his name even after they thought him dead. They feared him well. Um, so, like, I think Moody is only, like, uh, paranoid at this level because he's like, look, if, you know, Quirrell isn't who he says he is because he's clearly not. We think he's Monroe. What if Monroe's not who he says he is? Like something fucking is up here and you should just fire him. Like this is easy. I know. And <laughs> what the fuck, people? What I like about it is that uh, uh, 
uh, Minerva at some point says, you, you say that every year. And he's like, yes, and I'm always I'm right. right. <laughs> I know, like it sticks out like, and we always have this like extremely arbitrary, you know, you know, like knee-jerk reaction from McGonagall of like, oh no, but we need to have our defense professor. It's like a thoroughly like unjustified and, you know, way too small a consideration to warrant the level of bullshit McGonagall is willing to sweep under the rug in order to get it. Um, and it's just like, yeah, like in this whole scene, like everything just keeps getting more and more ridiculous that everybody's like, what the fuck? Yeah. And, and like, so Moody's like calling it up and like Moody's not even quite enough there. He's just like, oh, this, it, because, oh, you should fire him should be like, oh, because he's fucking Voldemort or, or something that he's on Voldemort's side or something. But it's just sort of like, oh, this, I just don't like it. It's, it's no good. You should fire him. I think this is the um, non-Voldemort hypothesis of who's behind all of this. And it's just default the defense professor. And then he's pointing out all the extra reasons on top of he's the defense professor to be suspicious of this guy. Um, and then I like this too, where, um, so this is in Harry's internal monologue to himself. He says, it is kind of obvious though, and it observes his inner Slytherin. I mean, do you actually believe that under natural circumstances, anyone would end up as the last heir to an ancient, uh, to a most ancient house and Lord Voldemort killed his family. And he had to avenge his, his martial arts sensei. If anything, I'd say went over the top in setting up his new identity as the ideal literary hero. Mm. That sort of thing doesn't just happen in real life. This, from an orphan who was raised unaware of his heritage, commented Harry's inner <laughs> critic, with a prophecy about him. You know what? I don't think we've ever read a story about two equally destined heroes competing to see who's cliched enough to take down the villain. <laughs> and then... I like how we're getting like, more and more of this picture drawn of Quirrell being somebody who's like, you know, he's orchestrating theater. Uh, and that the things that are over the top about what he does were on purpose and maybe like misjudging the levels of it, but that, uh, so both a, that like things are done for effect, for appearance. Um, but also in that just the level of just like cold bloodedness to that. Cause then I'm picturing like, okay, he's got this like mini army of death eaters and then these other, you know, and then he's, who was he? He wasn't part of the order of the things, but, it, but, you know, acting on behalf of the good guys and that he's you know killing people and having people killed on both sides like hey you death eaters go over here and kill him and then he you know comes back pretending to be david monroe and kills the people he just ordered to you know go over and kill somebody else that he's just you know everybody's just like furniture in the room for him to fuck with right it's that's the uh even moody doesn't climb that high on the paranoia ladder yeah. but i did like the the next line after harry's thinking about you know the, the heroes who's competing to, use, to see who's cliched enough to take down the villain. Uh, he's like, yes, replied the central Harry over the distant rooping sound in the background. So it's like, there's, <laughs> there's more lampshading. Um, did we get to the part where he asks? Uh, oh yeah. It's right after this um, where like, uh, um, let's see. What was it? Uh, Moody says, I swear the curse gets worse every year. And, as you lock it more and more reluctant to let them go, your precious professor Kroll could have been, could, could be Grindelwald in disguise. And then Harry's like, wait, is he, I mean, could he actually be? And, uh, the whole back and I forth like here. Like, so you're like, you're right there. Almost. I like the Grindelwald, back and, he could be. I like the back and forth with Grindelwald though. He's like, I check Grindy's cell every two months. <laughs> also, I like, I calls him Grindy and Baldy. He's got a theme with how he oh, yeah. belittles his enemies. Um, he was there in March. He's like, could the person in the cell be a ringer? I administer a blood test for his identity, son. Yeah. Where do you keep the blood he uses as a reference? In, in a safe place. place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
and like he's like smiling he's like this this one can be taught he's like have you considered the r office after you graduate (laughs) you seem to have this paranoia shit down kid (laughs) now and we did it did get dropped in here that like so the reason harry the reason the potters are a noble house uh is because uh harry killed voldemort and that their rule about um that if somebody kills the last of an ancient house, then whoever avenges that death, uh, their house becomes a, a noble house. Pretty cool um, rule. And so, yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I can see that. And I guess then it keeps the uh, total number of uh, noble houses uh, in a in stasis. So that's good. Well, unless there's other but, ways uh, to get nobled. But, I guess so. Yeah. But that so, – so it is Harry's killing of Voldemort that qualifies – um, the Potter house as a noble house. And then we get it like this part seemed like really strained. And so I'm like, okay, I don't know if this could be significant later. But so then Harry wonders a little later, he's like, okay, if I'm only noble because I killed Voldemort, but then it turns out I didn't actually kill Voldemort. Does that mean the Potter house is no longer a noble house? And if the Potter house is no longer a noble house, does that mean that the oath that McGonagall had Hermione swear to my house is no longer valid. And if it's no longer valid, then the debt that the Malfoy house owed to the Potter house via Hermione is no longer valid. Therefore, if I didn't kill Voldemort, they can put Hermione back in Azkaban. Like, that was a long walk to get there. <laughs> I'm like, all right, may- maybe, I-, I don't know. And it was like, we don't even know necessarily that's the rules. Like maybe there's no backseas on making somebody a noble house, but um, like, so we don't know, but I was just like, that is a very, that's a, a long chain of what ifs. I, I love it. I think this is what happens if you spend 10 minutes in the room with Moody. Like the paranoia is contagious. Uh, it was, that one's even not so much paranoia. It was just like excessive worry. Yeah. Because uh, it wasn't like worrying about a plot. It was just these like super far-fetched, you know, contingencies of like worrying about the outcome. That's a good point. And really at the bottom that. of the outcome there is Hermione's safety. And he's yeah. like, is my friend yeah. really safe now? Yeah. 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 Um, we get some exposition dump Voldemort on how the killing curse. Second curses. time is he is he double noble? If he kills he uh, if plus, he, if he kill if he kills Voldemort a second time, does he get to be like super noble? Maybe extra noble. That sounds fair. The noble and most noble house of Potter. <laughs> noble and most noble. Is it now ten percent more noble, new and improved noble house of Potter? I'm trying to think of what else to cover here. Um. They talk about the killing curse and how it works. Uh, it's more than just like a a death spell. Apparently, you like it. You know, you can't you have to be a bad guy to cast it. You don't have to be bad in, in movies. Like words. You just have yeah. to like you want the person dead yeah. for the sake of being dead. Yeah. Um, not, yeah, it's not not for the yeah, greater it's, good. It's, yeah, it's not a happy shiny spell to be casting. You have to be a little bit mean. Yeah, and that's why he says that you you can't be you don't have to be a dark wizard to use that spell, but you can't be Albus Dumbledore either, and that's why if you're arrested for killing with it, there's no possible defense. That explains it. Okay, yeah. So um, it's it's dangerous because it goes right through shields and kills people straight through walls, apparently, which isn't the case in canon. In canon, you could block it with objects. I remember. Um, hmm. Oh yeah, but, it was like it was a kind of a lower. Yeah, or stakes spell. People are just kind of like tossing it around at each other. And I mean, you know, a death spell is still scary, but like if you can just you know put up a shield, like literally a Captain America shield, and block it, you're fine. Um, I suppose it depends on the object because I, I, I guess clothes I don't, don't recall count, that crossover. But, is Captain America in Hogwarts? Uh, he should be. Um, he could teach uh, Smuggle Steve, Studies Professor or Martial Steve Arts. Rogers. Yeah, there you go. So 
Yeah, I, I like that just extra bit of like that's that's part of what makes yeah. the uh, making magic show its work stuff fun. Because like why so was it, why was it is that so so severe? Really because if you killed somebody with it, it it by the fact that you you killed somebody with the killing curse proves that you wanted them dead for the sake of killing them, and that that's why there's not a defense. Like if you kill somebody with a a cutting hex, you'd be like, oh, I didn't mean to kill him, and that all right, well maybe you didn't mean to kill him, but if you kill them with a the, the killing curse, there's no possible defense for it. There's, there's no Avada Kedavra manslaughter. Right. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> um, and was it, so was it established, was it established in the originals that, uh, that Dumbledore can't cast Avada Kedavra? I didn't know. I thought it's just, he didn't, but I didn't know that it was, he couldn't. I don't get the impression that, that anything was flushed out that much. Um, yeah. But he seems like the kind of person who just wouldn't. Yeah. But I get, yeah. And I guess in the originals, the, it was, it wasn't as, significant a spell it was just kind of like it was the 45 caliber not the 38 caliber spell right um so let's see uh yeah i'm not sure what else to cover here um yeah so then we just skipped i don't know is this this oh no so and then this is the snape hypothesis that comes up next oh yeah that comes up in a second but i do like the little beat here where um McGonagall says, all right, fine. What would you have us do? And he's like, easy, get rid of the defense professor and see if all your troubles mysteriously clear up. Bet you a galleon they do. And she says, but will you teach the yes, class? Yes, but what are you going to do? But like, you can't possibly do that. He also just like is has so few fucks. He's like, I'll bet you 10 bucks this this works out, right? I'm not sure what a galleon's mm-hmm. worth, but it's yeah, like, yeah. he's not saying I'll bet you a thousand dollars. He's like, I'll bet you 50 mm-hmm. bucks. Like, you know, this mm-hmm. this is, it's, it's obvious and I really don't see any point in deliberating on it. But, um, then she says, "But will you teach the classes?" And he says, "Ha! If I ever say yes to that, che- if uh, if I ever say yes to that question, check me for polyjuice because it's not me." And that was the plot of the fourth book. Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot that little self-aware oh, yeah. nod there. All right, so what were we talking about? Uh, Hypothesis: Severus Snape. Yes, I thought this was interesting. Yeah, and I like how we're uh, like the the presentation of Snape is changing. It's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it starts out like McGonagall like sort of like wants to talk to Harry because she's concerned um, uh, about Snape. It, now, now that we're saying this, I'm not sure why she thinks uh, Harry's opinion about all of this is like super important. Um, but what McGonagall says is, and we get some like more uh, funny, inappropriate talking about sex with an 11 year old. Well, um, but that so McGonagall is worried that. Uh, and what she describes it is like over all the years that she's known Snape, he's always been very obviously not at all interested in girls having crushes on him. But that the, because he's all emo, that there's a certain kind of emo girl that is constantly having crushes on him. But he just tells them to fuck off in a very like Snapey kind of way. Um, but that McGon and that uh, and that she knows that the reason uh, the reason for that is that he's been in love with Lily Potter all this time and is not interested in anybody else. Um, but that she's now worried because recently she's seen Snape, I guess, being slightly more interested in high school girls having crushes on him. But I wasn't quite, it wasn't like phrased all sinister like that. All, all he did that, was notice and tell them to stop. Yeah, whereas before he yeah. just ignored it. Like he wasn't aware of it. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that like, just this sense that like oh, Snape is, um, you know, thawing a little bit uh, is a sign that he's kind of getting over Lily. And if he is getting over Lily, then he doesn't feel guilty about Lily anymore. And if he doesn't feel guilty about Lily anymore, then he's not on our side anymore. Um, So that's like the worry from 
uh, from McGonagall about Snape. Um, and I guess so this whole conversation, like Snape had left the room. Oh, this was after like they all kind of disbanded. And then as they're, as McGonagall and Harry are walking out on their own, right? Yeah. yeah. And all this stemmed from, I think, way back with the, like after the uh, Lysophilus Strange incident, he asks uh, Dumbledore and McGonagall to like keep an eye on any changes in behavior in Snape, um, which I think he does for a couple of reasons. Yeah. Like part of it was because like Snape had, uh, he was worried that something might change after he learned that after Harry nicely informed him that his mom was shallow. Um, <laughs> and uh, like that, it was kind of pathetic for this guy to be in love with her for, you know, all this time and stuff. Then it's like, Oh, it was you. Oh, I almost died. Okay. Oh fuck. Um, and then I did like yeah. uh, this bit where um, uh, Hermione or uh, Hermione, Harry says, uh, well, you say it like it's a bad thing. If there's one thing I did understand from reading those books, because she asks him, Mr. Potter, have you read many books that young children aren't meant to read? I've read <laughs> all of them. Um, and uh, he's like, you're not supposed to like question people's preferences. You know, so if somebody likes, you know, greasy, you know, scary looking dude, that's on them. And he says, look, I mean, from what I've read, there's like something like a 10% chance that I'll find Professor Snape attractive when I'm older. <laughs> and uh at some point he says, not that there's anything wrong. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Not, not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. The, the other Seinfeld reference, but yes. uh, it was what he's like, wait, Snape and Dumbledore. Cause that's, cause yeah. she, she had said something along like about how the, the bond that tied Severus to yeah. Albus. And he's like, wait, and she's Snape like, Oh and, Jesus. No, yeah. stop it. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. No. For, yeah. Over oh, pity's sake. And um, this is then where uh, he says, okay, well if, if they're, if his bond did, you know, is weakening with the headmaster, like what would he do? And we get this little cut inside professor McGonagall's head where she sort of just realizes that she doesn't know him at all, that they've, Mm -hmm. you know, been on the same side for a decade, but that she like, she has no idea like how to model him as a person. And so she's like, I have no idea. Um, and, uh, then he says, okay, well, I think my evidence points the same direction as yours. I mean, it increases the probability that professor Snape isn't in love with my mother anymore. McGonagall just closes her eyes and she's just like, I give up. All right, fuck this. You're talking, you know, I think Draco mentioned something like that where like talking with Harry is just like a headache like that. Like, how does he keep pulling (laughs) these fucking rabbits out of his ass like this? Um, So. (laughs) That was a a mixed metaphor. It was, but I liked it. (laughs) Rabbits and hats is a wizard thing. Pulling it out of his ass is a muggle thing. Harry is a nice bridge between those two worlds. It was a very careful (laughs) metaphor. Pulling a hat out of your rabbit. <laughs> Perfect. Poor rabbit, either way. Um, then we cut to uh, potions class where Snape had sabotaged his potion. It made him stay after class. Yeah, and I, I thought that was interesting because he like apologizes to Harry for doing it, which is a very like new kind of Snape behavior. He also goes on to say it will not be reflected in your grades. And it's like, well, no yeah. shit. You, you sabotaged it. <laughs> Better not impact my grades. Um but yeah, what is what Snape's holding back for? What's he want to talk about? He um he basically, and I guess it kind of isn't for so yeah he wants Harry um, he asks Harry he's like oh so you recovered the memory of uh, of the night that uh, your parents died and you uh, killed the, hopefully Voldemort and he just wants him to to tell him about it um, and I does he even and so we see like the real reason is just that Snape just wants to hear about Lily's last moments. Um, but does he like make an excuse for that? Like, was is, did he claim some practical reason? 
No, that was asking it. Harry. I don't think he, he just, did. Like, it was yeah, just, like, Harry asks yeah. him, he says, you know, why? I wouldn't think it would be a pleasant thing for you to hear either, Professor. And he just says, I've imagined it every night these last 10 years. Yeah. Because he knows that it's his fault that she got killed because he ran to the yeah. Voldemort with the prophecy. Yeah. Um, um, and this yeah, is I like the, the, yeah, the way it kind of I, – I guess this is basically the same kind of humanizing of him from the original books. But it was just – yeah, I like the, the shift. Yeah, it it – like because we've already painted him as like, you know, this really coldly calculating person when it, when it shows pain on his face and, you know, it says his voice is almost a whisper. It like, it actually adds gravity to it. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, Harry asks and like, yeah, I'll tell you, but can you tell me how you learned about the prophecy? And, uh, oh, yeah. the, it turns out he was there to like in the books, he was going for the job interview and then heard the prophecy and bolted to go tell the dark Lord immediately because he was too stupid to sit and think about it for a second in his own words, not mine. Um, and that it was like a purely like calc- like a not at all. Uh, what am I trying to say? There was, there was no justification, even partial justification for him running off and telling Voldemort. It was just clearly like, Oh, this is selfishly to my advantage. This is valuable information. I'm going to go sell it. Was there anything like half okay about what he did? I don't think there was. No, he wanted to join the Death yeah, Eaters it was just purely and yeah. didn't consider for a second to try and solve the riddle before he gave it to Voldemort. Um, and I like this line too, because uh, Harry's like, wait, a, a job interview or Trelawney happened to be there and you just happened to be able to overhear? That seems like a coincidence. And he says, Sears are the pawns of time, Mr. Potter. Coincidence is beneath them and they are above it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so... Like then he says, like there's there's no memory charm, you know, there's no missing lines. I don't know why he thought there would have been missing lines. Um, and if there was, like, what you think the vault? You think Voldemort just took my words for it? No, he he ripped the prophecy from my mind and yeah. got the you know the actual like he one hundred percent confirmed con- they, confirmed the verbiage. Yeah. Wasn't it like super important that Snape being a perfect Occlumens was like that explained a lot of how he was able to be a double agent for Voldemort? For so long like that was kind of a key point in the original books that's a good point I recall. maybe he upped his occlumency practice after being a death eater for a while or something um because like and voldemort's also supposed to be a really good occlument or legilimens but that's not really that shouldn't matter you know if, if you're able to bluff him you need to be perfect at it not just good um well i guess like just go back to the, like if this is all just theater then maybe voldemort totally did know that he was being double crossed and just thought that was a cool twist <laughs> that's awesome i like that a lot and yeah that could totally be the case i don't see uh, a reason why it shouldn't be especially yeah i mean yeah it's so i mean it's totally still vague like what's the end game for it but if and because because uh quarrel did lay this out with harry many many chapters ago about like, oh, if we need them to stop worrying about Voldemort, then we need to give them a Voldemort to defeat and then have that Voldemort defeated. Like this idea that um, that Quirrell just sort of like, you know, sets up, you know, fake conflicts just to get a rise out of people, like is kind of already there. Um, and so then like, he's, it doesn't even, he doesn't even necessarily need Voldemort to win anything. I mean, we don't know. I mean, maybe he does, but like that's, it's then not necessarily the case that his goal is, is for Voldemort to succeed and maybe how it played out is exactly what he wanted, or maybe it was failed, but not heading towards the goal that we think. And so that, yeah, if he's like, oh, okay, Snape's um, like, if, so I don't know, but like, if really all he's trying to do is just whip up all of uh, wizarding England into just turning into like this very like 
post 9-11 paranoid Patriot Act kind of vibe than um, than him being double crossed by um, by Snape and having Snape, you know, feeding information back to the good guys is, you know, totally cool. Like that'll work. I could work with that. Um, That's the so, problem with playing you know, 4D chess with somebody who's better than you are. Like <laughs> if I'm playing, like I, I know how to play chess. I'm not great. So like if I'm playing deep blue and it makes a move that makes no sense to me, like all I can infer from it is that it's making a move that's going I to help no me. no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I, I guess the other thing, like if, yeah. because if, if Voldemort's goal, I mean, I guess like, like the end to end goal has got something to do with him being able to live forever. But like the, the dots between that and, and, you know, the whole Voldemort theater are thoroughly unknown to me. But, um, but if, if, the, if the way that he's going to get there is just by whipping up anarchy, then he's got all kinds of, you know, options. Like he, he's, he's got a lot of field to play with. The, then he's just got to, you know, do stuff that's going to rattle people. And even if those things play out in an unpredictable way, he can, you know, if entropy's on his side. I think like no matter what his goals and I, you know, this is easy enough for me to model because I would also like to live to be very, very old. Like <laughs> the, uh, the goal isn't just to live. It's like to have a good time while doing it. Like if all, if all Voldemort wanted to do was live forever. And you think that Quirrell is Voldemort. Like Quirrell said he was aware of the space program when he was talking with Harry and showed him the stars the first time. Like, wouldn't you just make a moon base and tell everyone else to fuck off? <laughs> like you, you could go, well, you could you know, go live forever on the moon and be perfectly safe up there from all the nuclear yeah. war, or whatever you might take over the world. But like that'd be boring. Like the goal is to have a fun long life. Or maybe it's a uh, he, he needs to have Harry with him. Um, that could that could totally be something like that. That's less mushy sounding, but um, except like part of at least like I could see Quarrel like yes, his goal is to live forever, but he's like got but he's got his very broken Quarrel view of it and that maybe he doesn't see it much beyond because it's like, I guess I see it in this sort of like fear driven, just like, how did I say it? Like fleeing death rather than trying, he's not so much trying to live forever as trying to never die. Um, and that it is like, he isn't thinking, you know, in terms of like, Oh, I want to live a billion years of happiness. He's just like, dear God, I don't ever want to die. Um, and that he hasn't like thought it all the way out just cause he's like, his brain isn't wired that way. So, yeah, that's that's a, a fair point. I do think he'd get bored if he was just on his moon base too. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, long story short, here with the dialogue with Harry and Snape, Harry tells him, you know, about ma- mainly what Snape wanted to hear was that Lily wasn't tortured to death; that she just died. Yeah. And Harry doesn't say out loud, "Well, she died knowing that they were thinking that she'd failed, and the Dark Lord was going to kill her baby." But uh, he didn't torture her. If that's what you're asking. And it was just my sick mind, or did you get the impression that Snape was asking if something rapey had happened and that kind of over went over Harry's head, but he enough to confirm to Snape though that yeah, no, nothing happened, but or is that just that I'm perverse? Um it seemed it, like Snape was worried about like a sexual component to it. It is not an unrealistic reading. I think the line exactly is the the Dark Lord dot 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 did not do anything to her before she died. Yeah, that sounds Yeah, that Sounds like it could be a lot of terrible things. So, um, yeah. yeah. But luckily, no, I guess all she did was die knowing that her baby was about to be killed. So thank goodness for that. 
Oh, we get the date it's actually. Sort of like fits actually, we've had the date like a hundred times this chapter, and I kept forgetting. Yeah, because I, I was curious when this was from how far it was from Christmas. Uh, April tenth, nineteen ninety-two, and uh, there was actually one other thing we forgot to cover in the chapter at the at the very top. We get all those uh, those news headlines. Those news news headlines, yeah. And some of them are hilarious. I will just grab my favorite one, which is uh, the the New Zealand spellcrafters diurnal notice. What drove British legislator legislature insane? Could our government be next? Experts list top twenty eight reasons to believe it's already happened. <laughs> I like, and we get to see like the quibbler doing the like it's like the MSNBC Fox News versions between like quibbler and uh, the Daily Prophet, and then like how like what do they call it like the Mad Muggle in the yeah Daily legal Prophet. legal tricks free Mad Muggleborn as Potter threatens that, Ministry yeah. with attack on Azkaban. And that the but the quibbler is like a is a combination of sympathetic to Hermione and also crazy. It's it's purely yeah. I, I like it's less of like the opposite of Fox News and more just like uh, the National, National Enquirer. Enquirer. Yeah, Malfoy flees Hogwarts as Vila power is awakened. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I guess because I guess it's not as negative Malfoy as uh, as I thought. It's just sort of like oh he runs away. It's just nutty. Yes, fleeing Vila. All right. I wish we'd had more of Luna Lovegood in this story. Yeah. Alas. She is only, uh, what, 10 right now? She doesn't show up to the next book. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, so I guess she's not even at Hogwarts yet. Well, if we were going we to we uh, pull uh, Tonks back by a year, we could have pushed Luna Lovegood forward. She could have skipped a grade. She's gifted. It's true. All right. Well, we don't have a lot of reading between like now and when I think I want to end the next reading. So the only real question is, do you want a cliffhanger or do you not want a cliffhanger? Cause like is um, the, the reading, I, I haven't done the word count cause they're, they're two or three shortest chapters. So mm-hmm. like there's, you know, there's not a lot of time commitment here. Uh, I guess like, well, again, it's not, it's not ever the actual reading. Um, I guess does it, it would be more how much, to talk about is there so i'm not i'm not worried cliffhanger not cliffhanger less about do you think we've got like a solid amount of stuff to read about with two versus three hmm i gotta think about this for a second so after some deliberation are we, are we subjecting to, are we subjecting the audience to that whole uh i'm gonna factor? I'll, I'll clean out part of our discussion on how we're gonna chop <laughs> up the chapters short version is we're trying to decide like how much would be enough to talk about because that, that's the right way to frame it i think you're right brian it's less about because the reading time commitment's never yeah. that much it's more just like do we have enough to talk about? And we will have plenty to talk about if we cover three chapters. So we're going to do 87, 88, and 89 next chapter or next week. So join us back here next week. And I swear I will do something evil with that money if none of you guys submit fan art and claim that prize. So do uh, enter the fan art contest. Really, it doesn't cost you anything other than time that it takes to share your awesome artwork. If we, if we don't give the fan art, uh, the, uh, fan art prize away, we're going to buy essential oils with it. Oh, I was thinking like just donate it to like the RNC or something. We donate essential oils to, uh, <laughs> and we got to like stay Colorado local. Uh, so let's focus on the family. God. Yeah. We get some essential oils. No one wants that. So <laughs> for the love of goodness, someone please enter the fan art contest and take this money. All right. We'll see you guys back here next week for 87, 88, and 89. Bye everybody. 